jazz. I feel like I need an adult. I'm a woman now. Wink. <laughs> Full disclosure, we don't like jazz. Welcome to Up Yours Downstairs, the podcast that's as good as any Frenchman. I'm Kelly Anakin. And I'm Tom Schneider. We are properly married. But I'm not your darling girl, am I? Not that I know of? <laughs> I mean, and, and you would know. I feel like these have been getting increasingly weird. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think we... we might need couples counseling <laughs> based on the opening to this podcast. <laughs> We just like to amuse ourselves. I suppose so. Yeah. Welcome back, cousins, to our recap of Downton Abbey Series 4, Episode 6. We're over halfway done with the series, yeah. as far as we can tell. <laughs> right. Uh, we don't really know what shenanigans uh, PBS, PBS has yeah. up their sleeves programming-wise. Right. But... Uh, like, for all we know, next week it'll be three hours long. Exactly. So... Yeah, we have no <laughs> idea. So we're we're keeping pace with only ourselves. Right. <laughs> we have no new countries to report this week, so we'll dive straight into Cousin of the Week. Okay. Cousin Brooke writes, Dear Cousins, I have finally taken the time to send you a letter instead of my usual carrier pigeon or a Facebook comment, which I have dubbed a calling card. Oh. Before I get to my intentions of this telegram, I would like to provide some exposition. I didn't start watching Downton until about a year ago when I was hooked. I watched all three seasons twice before season three was even finished airing on PBS. <laughs> the second time was with a former friend, but to expound upon the story would be so middle class. <laughs> the incredibly awesome cousin Emily suggested I listen to your podcast, knowing my love of Downton, comedy, and swearing. Shortly after, my father-in-law passed away, and your podcast helped me to laugh again afterward. I would like to formally thank the two of you for recording this podcast. It was a hard time for our family, and odd as it may seem, the two of you became friends to me. I look forward to hearing you every week, and I would check every Monday for a new episode, even when we were posting at two-week intervals. I may not always agree with you two, but I appreciate your honesty, snark, and passion for the show. In fact, I talk more about you than I talk about Downton. <laughs> I even convinced, possibly cajoled, a coworker to watch Downton and listen to your podcast. As promised some time ago, I have compiled the nicknames of all the Downton characters for you. Also enclosed in the file are tabs for the Abbey Awards and cousin recommendations up to date, plus the fashion backwards and Tom Repeats history for seasons one, two, and four. Cousin Jess is filling in season three and the two special episodes while on leave. I'll send a fully updated list later. I have more Downton-related things to send you, but I will leave those until the interim period. As not to take up more of your time, I will bring this telegram to a close. Thank you again for all the joy you bring to me and all the other cousins. I look forward to more booms, songs, impressions, and most of all, snark. Your cousin, Brooke, Baroness of Highview. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Cousin Brooke. We are so thrilled we with are. this spreadsheet because we have wanted this for a really long time. <laughs> yeah. But and we, we simply, were never going no, to do it No, we just, we were never going to. <laughs> uh, so we've made the spreadsheet uh, available as is on Google Drive. There's links on our Twitter feed as well as our Facebook page. So you can check that out if you like. Yeah. Uh, and you know enjoy and we'll uh, post the updated version as soon as cousin jess finishes her portion uh, and cousin brooke did uh send a postscript making sure not to minimize cousin jess's contribution so cousin jess we are looking forward to what you have worked up as well absolutely all right 
So with that, let's dive into this recap for what was a really delightful episode. Yes, agreed. One of our favorites, we think, yeah. of this season. Uh, the other being the episode uh, where Anna is raped, although that obviously... Right. It, 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 cha- it's, it really, know. yeah, it's not pure <laughs> enjoyment at that point. Right, right. Uh, there's really very little to hate in this episode, but... We will hate on it. Oh, we will. Oh, we will hate. Oh. We're bringing the hate. That's right. Daisy is bringing the hot toast. And uh, she brings it into Alfred's seat right away. And Carson is like, hey, hey, hot toast over here, lady. And she's I'm- like, my hot toast brings all the boys <laughs> to the yard. And they're like, it's better than yours. <laughs> hot toast. Yeah. <laughs> I, lo- I like how they call it hot toast. No, I know. Like, what? Is there cold toast? Uh, I mean, there yeah, is. I guess that's like croutons or something. I don't, <laughs> <laughs> I but still, it's like. Yeah, no, it's a, yeah. Is this a new innovation? <laughs> Possibly. They did just get that toaster. It's not like before the war. Oh, God. <laughs> when they all had cold toast. Don't all the you time. even start with me. Yeah. Uh, in any case, Jimmy Kent wonders why Alfred is getting special treatment. Hugh says that she's sure he isn't, even though clearly he is. <laughs> Uh, in the hall, Patmore asks Daisy, why is Alfred getting special treatment? And Daisy says, oh, it's because he's staying with us. You know that wasn't his choice, right? <laughs> right. Like, he's only staying because the Ritz didn't want him. It wasn't right. like he suddenly, like, like, got hit on the head. It was like, oh, I want to stay with Daisy. <laughs> right. He's trapped here forever now. There will be plenty of time to give him hot toast. <laughs> Up in Mary's room, uh, Mary is reading a letter over her breakfast. I really enjoy seeing Mary getting her breakfast in her room. Yeah. I don't know that we've seen this too much. Not too Like, certainly not near so much as McGee. Yeah. Anyway, it's it's fun to see how yeah. their breakfast, you know, <laughs> differs. She doesn't have any of that heathenish orange oh, juice. Oh, she certainly does not. <laughs> the letter says that Evelyn Napier and his friend Charles Blake are coming to Downton to stay in a few days. And they are confirming that they will be staying at the estate. Mm-hmm. So Mary explains to Anna why they're coming. She thinks that Downton is doing fine estate-wise, but would like that to be confirmed by professionals. Right. And uh, Mary points out that Anna seems a little bit brighter, a little bit uh, lighter in the loafers, so to speak. <laughs> and uh, Anna says that things aren't quite sorted out, but things are better, and that she's moved back into the cottage with Bates. So Mary, very passive-aggressively, <laughs> says that since Anna's obviously not telling her what it was about, she's still glad that it's been resolved. Right. So a nice, uh, a nice little piece of high-class bitchery from our favorite <laughs> high-class bitch. Right. Well, she knows she has no official grounds to make her tell her, but she's just annoyed. Not like before the war. (laughs) You started it. I did. You really started this. It it is my own fault. It is your own fault. Uh, So downstairs at breakfast, Edith is there, of course. She still doesn't get breakfast I like that she's holding it down, though, man. Yeah. You know? She's really holding it down. Yeah. She could be like... Remember when she got jilted and she came down for breakfast the next day? And they were like, you could seriously have breakfast in your room today. And she was like, nope. That's right. This is still Downton Abbey. (laughs) We're living by the rules. (laughs) I'm here to take my shame and my toast. She should have been like, "Uh, can I have breakfast in bed from now on? I'm a woman now. (laughs) She doesn't know that for sure, though. (laughs) Well... Uh, Lord Grantham is reading a letter, and apparently McGee's brother, Uncle Harold, has, uh, has pulled a real Grantham over there. Uh, <laughs> he has something to do with oil leases, says Lord Grantham has gone awry. 
Uh, Lord Grantham says that he always thought of Uncle Harold as rather good at business. So I guess it's not a surprise that Uncle Harold is bad at business. <laughs> Edith wonders why Harold is bothering Lord Grantham with it, and Lord Grantham isn't sure, uh, as he does not seem to realize that he is slowly being hit up for a massive amount of money. Uh which, considering how many times he's hit up that branch of the family for a <laughs> right. massive amount of money, mm-hmm. you would really think, I mean, come on, the entire purpose of your marriage was to act as, you know, a savings and loan <laughs> right. for everyone related to you by blood. <laughs> it's true. I mean, you know, and vice versa. Like, they're all, oh, yeah, everybody, they're all in on it. Yeah. Ooh, man, Mac L is not going to be happy about this. No, no, she, she is not. She is really tired of funding the Granthams. Yeah. And she's certainly not going to be pleased about her own idiot son. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, being as stupid as her son-in-law. <laughs> yeah. She's probably like, we had one thing over these people. <laughs> one! <laughs> yeah, so I, we all look forward to that. Uh, meanwhile, Branson is reading a letter about the Tamworths, and Rose says that they have Tamworths at Dunneagle, and Daddy swears by them, Daddy being shrimpy. <laughs> uh, Lord Grantham says that they haven't done much with pigs before, which I was glad to hear, because I thought when they said Tamworths, they were talking about, like, a tenant family. I also felt that. <laughs> like, I I think that was deliberate on Julian Fellow. He's like, oh, you think I'm patrician, eh? <laughs> well, let's throw your own patricianness back in your face. Ha ha ha, pigs! <laughs> in any case, Lord Grantham is a little bit nervous about the pig situation and Branson's like, hey, I thought you were on board. And he's like, I am on board. I'm just nervous. And then uh, he has to get out of there. And I was also like, wait, did did they have to sell Dunneagle or something? They you know what? Here's problems? what I think. They probably didn't have to sell the house, but they did have to sell off a bunch of the land. Oh, right. They Look, had to like and break I'm, it up or I'm whatever. I'm literally making this up. Yeah, but that Because I sense. really do not remember what happened at Dunneagle. Well, um, Apart I'm, from O'Brien failing to <laughs> take that lady's extremely uh, alcoholic drink and gave it instead to Molesley. Right. That's the only thing we all remember. Mm-hmm. And Rose's side boob. Right. <laughs> Yeah, when are we going to get that back? Well, this isn't Dunneagle anymore, Kelly. That's true. They have to be a bit more civilized. Boring old Downton. (laughs) Downstairs, Bates is uh, standing in a corner (laughs) rather menacingly, frankly. Uh, Anna offers him a penny for his thoughts, and he's like, no sale. (laughs) He says that it's his fault. Or no, she, she married a brooder. And brooders brood. And we just want him to stop saying brood. Right. It's it's really uncomfortable. It's yeah. It's, it's like very... someone saying the word panties. <laughs> You're just like, I don't there's nothing inherently wrong with this, but I'm right. very uh, I feel like I need an adult. <laughs> right. Anyway, Anna's like, Oh, you know, brood about me, that'll make you happy and he's <laughs> like, Nope. <laughs> it's uh Ugh! I don't know what's going to happen, man. Yeah. There's just this this sense of dread hanging over these two. Yeah. And, I mean, look, Bates did decide to go, you know, full-on vigilante, apparently, last episode. Right. So, so yeah. Look out, possibly innocent bystanders. Uh, in the kitchen, Daisy tells Alfred that she is making an anchovy sauce for the fish souffle. Which, hurl. Yeah. Ugh. Um, but she asks Alfred if he wants to watch, uh, but he's, uh, he's given up his dreams. So no. Oh, good for you, Alfred. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Ivy says that his heart's not in it anymore. But Gee, pa- thanks, Ivy. Right. Why are you around? Yeah. 
Patmore says he just needs some time, and Daisy glares at Ivy. I really like when Daisy's angry. I really do, too. Like, I'd much rather see her go vigilante than Bates. <laughs> right. Up in McGee's room, uh, Rose comes in and calls her cousin Cora, and McGee says she can call her Cora now. And Rose hilariously says she wouldn't dare with cousin Robert, <laughs> uh, but McGee establishes herself as the cool mom. Oh, right. And is like, no, seriously, just call me Cora. Yeah. Totes fine. <laughs> I'm American. <laughs> we call each other by our first names <laughs> all the time. <laughs> Rose has come in to say that she settled the surprise for Lord Grantham's birthday, but she needs Carson to keep the secret of what it is, and she wants to know if he will. Uh, McGee points out that Mrs. Hughes is the one for a secret, and yeah. Rose is like, oh, wow, why did I not already know that? <laughs> right. And, you know, she's only been there for like a week or something. <laughs> right. Or yeah. I forget how long She's been all. there for yeah. some, some, some time. Yeah. Not uh, as long as McGee. No, not as long as McGee. And Rose is like, oh, yeah, Carson's a dick. And McGee's <laughs> right. like, yes, yes, he is. <laughs> Uh, so Baxter comes in to clear away McGee's breakfast tray and overhears part of Rose having a secret. Right. So, gee. Yeah. I wonder get, where this is going. Get ready for hijinks. I mean, they're not, they're just They're jinx. low jinx. Yeah. <laughs> they're not even, like, there's not enough information. Yeah. And I'll say this. I really want to know what Baxter's deal is. Right. I, I mean, feel like this is just mean now. It's It's gone a bit far, yeah. Anyway. No, again, I think there's only nine you know, British length episodes. Uh-huh. And I think that does include the holiday special, which is actually the London season. It's right. not Christmas oriented. Yeah. Which makes me really excited. Yeah. Because yeah. they've never shown the season before. They haven't. No. <gasps> we just saw them going and then coming back. So yeah, it's, yeah, it's this is cool. much more exciting. Yeah. But, uh, you know, we're really, really far into this season to not know what's up with Baxter. Agreed. Like, I, mean, I know we spent all that time on that goddamn witch. Yeah. Yeah. In any case, the Dowager Countess is at her writing desk when Spratt brings in the second post. How is a dowager like a writing desk? <laughs> uh, both kind of outdated at this point? Yes. Okay. <laughs> uh, the Dowager asks Spratt if he has taken the Natsuki carving that was on her desk. He's like, no. She asks who else has been in the room, and he says the maids, and as we all saw coming, Piglet. Oh, Piglet! Yeah. Quit going in that room, son! <laughs> That's right. Uh, well now, Betty was in there with him, one of the maids, but she wasn't necessarily watching the whole time, as she had, like, maid shit to do. <laughs> uh, but, uh, Peg was in there, Piglet was in there, watering the pot plants. <laughs> so, I guess the Dowager's got a little glaucoma going. <laughs> What is a roach clip? <laughs> hey, uh, don't do drugs. Stay in school. Oh, right. Unless you live somewhere where it's legal. Right. Then it's fine. Yeah, go ahead. If you live in uh, the state of Washington, Colorado, or the nation of Uruguay, then go ahead. In any case, a Sprat doesn't want Betty blamed. The Dowager Countess was not at all thinking about blaming Betty for this. And Sprat says something about it's that's the danger of having small things that can fit into a pocket. And the Dowager says, I feel like most things would fit into this particular pocket. Which doesn't make any sense to me. I know. So Sprat's like, so you think it was a kangaroo, Mom? <laughs> <laughs> I actually thought they were setting it up to have been Sprat. No, I actually I had that, and that thought then too. Then Mosley could be her butler because he's always which I was the... I know, but I was so bummed because I was like I love Spratt. Like yeah. I want a whole spinoff called the Dower House. <laughs> yeah, and it's just Spratt and the Dowager and you know Peglet. 
Sure. Betty. What's yeah. Betty's deal? I don't know. We've never seen her. Well, right. Branson and Mary are walking through some random barn. <laughs> yeah. And Branson says that they must get the sums right, while Mary thinks they must speculate to accumulate. Right. Which is just a buzzword she picked up somewhere. Like, come on, Mary. Right. Nobody actually says that. Yeah. We've all been to seminars. And uh, Branson attributes this to the American half of her. Uh, Mary ignores this because she's like, I have no American half. <laughs> right. Mary asks if he will really emigrate to America. And he says, not until he's got the pig business up and running. <laughs> which, famous last words. <laughs> Just want to know, I've left behind a successful pig business. <laughs> Mary says they can give masses of introductions, including to Grandmama and Uncle Harold. Which seems like... <laughs> That's getting less valuable yeah. by the second. Which Branson informs her uh, that Lord Grantham got bad news about Uncle Harold. And she says she thinks it's just that his yacht has run aground or a girl has gone back to mother. Branson then says that it sounded much worse than that. And then just goes to the car. Doesn't yeah. fill in any right. yeah. uh, speculation of his own right. as to just why. Like, is he dying? Like, what, what are we talking about here? Uh, well, Mary doesn't seem all that interested, frankly. <laughs> that's that's so. true. Well, I mean, how many times in her life has she seen Uncle Harold? Probably three. Yeah. Uh, Baxter is sewing, as per usual. Yeah, like, never not sewing. The <laughs> Baxter story. Right. Thomas strolls in and asks her if she's recently overheard anything that he could misinterpret for her. And <laughs> she has. She says that Lady Rose has some secret. She doesn't know what, but she's sure it will be nothing. So... Listen to Baxter, Thomas. Yeah. Quit trying to make your life more exciting than it is. He can't. We cut to Peglet at... Crawley House telling Isabel that he's been fired and she is furious. Yeah. Like in high dudgeon furious. Yeah. Like she can't, she's wants to hit something and there's nothing yeah. present. Well, there's Peglet, but, right, but that would not. be adding injury to insult. <laughs> yeah. And that's not how Isabel Crawley rolls. No. Peglet doesn't understand why he's been fired, but I would venture to say Peglet doesn't understand much. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> but he tells her he had a good, a good touch with the greenhouses and he did all the house plants, especially the cannabis. I was a wizard with that poking stick. <laughs> <laughs> Isabel says that she's sure he was doing well and she will try to get to the bottom of it, although she's clearly already arrived at the bottom of it. Right. So Peglet calls her your ladyship again on his way out. Every scene this poor kid is in, he's clutching his hat in his hand. Yeah. And I'm like, what is, are you auditioning for a community theater production of Of Mice and Men? Like, God, you're dumb. Because anyway, if, you, if you're not, you should consider it. Yeah. You it, it look very real, well suited. You look real dumb. <laughs> uh, anyway, but Isabel starts to correct him and it's just, she's like, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I'm kind of like, you know, Isabel, as far as he's concerned, you are his ladyship. I mean, <laughs> right. you're, you're certainly doing more for him as a tenant than anyone else in your family. So. Yeah. yeah. Got rid of that biscuit. <laughs> in Hughes's parlor, Rose has just told Hughes that she wants to bring in a band for Lord Grantham's birthday and that no one must know. She says they'll roll the carpets up and get the band set up while the dinner is happening. Uh, Hughes says, so we must hide them until then. And Rose says, well, just keep them downstairs. Uh, she's like, he won't come down here, will he? And then she sort of looks around like she has no idea. Like, what does he do all day? Um, uh, fritter, fritter away the estate mainly. <laughs> right. Hang out with ISIS. Yeah. He's just like, okay. Well. Torch pages from <laughs> Gutenberg Bible for fun. How shall I light this cigar? Where's that Gutenberg Bible? <laughs> Where's that librarian? 
Uh, Hughes says, okay, she'll find them food and beds. Rose says that she thinks there are six of them and then realizes that Hughes actually needs to know. She's like, I'll, I'll check for you. Uh, Hughes asks if Michi knows what's going on and Rose says, not that it's a band, just that there's a surprise and that Hughes is helping with it. So Hughes will see what she can do. Rose is a smooth operator, man. She is. She is a girl who gets what she wants. Yeah. Even, like, these are long odds. They're like, oh, one random band leader from London, you want to make out with him. He is, you know, hundreds of miles away and has no reason to come here. And by God, she makes it happen. Uh, she really does. Secondly, we don't even know at this, but I mean, it's obviously oh, right. Jack Ross. I mean, like, you, you don't know. introduce a band leader. Right. And then have a band. Right. And not have it be the same band. Right. We had figured that out last we week. We had. Yeah. Uh, well, again, you know, they made a big to-do about Jack Ross being right, yeah. in this, se- this season. So yeah. clearly he had to find another reason to show up. Right, right. Mrs. Hughes walks Rose to the stairs and then Thomas comes by and wonders why Rose was down there. And Mrs. Hughes says he will continue to wonder. <laughs> and Thomas says she's mysterious. And she says, you know me, Mr. Barrow, a woman of mystery if ever there was one. <laughs> and she is kind of the best this season. Yeah. Like, yeah. not again, not Maggie Smith levels, but right. like right up there. Yeah, she's, she's, she's really nailing it. Mm-hmm. Thomas says that whatever Rose's secret is can't possibly affect them. And I love how much just like, this series in particular, Mrs. Hughes obviously just has everybody's fucking number. Right. Like, she's just like, oh my god. Uh, yeah. Like, S- Thomas, your schemes never work. <laughs> Whatever it is that you think you're doing, this yeah. is not working for you. Anyway, so Mrs. Hughes says uh, that it might affect them. So then Thomas says that he's worried. And Mrs. Hughes says she's sorry to hear that and then just leaves and smiles because <laughs> she knows she's pulling a scheme of her own, which That's is right. called Make Thomas Very Uncomfortable. Right. And I... I gotta say, Thomas, that was, like, Hughes was great, but she didn't try that hard to fool you. Like, No, and it's like, look, man, you just, you need to start applying critical thinking skills to your scheming. Right. Like, you know that you're always scheming, so why are you assuming that anyone else is telling you the truth? (laughs) Right. It's like, why does Thomas think he's good at scheming? And I guess it's the same reason that Lord Grantham thinks he knows how to run the estate. Like, just... Blind male privilege? Exactly. Yes. Isabel is sitting with the Dowager Countess, and the Dowager is explaining that every time Piglet comes into her room, something is going missing. You know, he has but, to have been in there more than twice. Well, but in any case, the paper knife, the Natsuki, and Isabel... It was really smart he steal those pot plants. <laughs> That's true. And to which Isabel responds, things, things, things. The, which is a bit much. Right. The Dowager Countess says that she does not understand Isabel's position. Which is, like, you know, I agree with her. No, because, well, Isabel says that the Dowager Countess puts too much importance on material objects and not enough on justice. And I'm like, okay, but in this particular case, those two things are interlinked. Like, if he has not stolen them, the things, then there's no problem. Right. I mean, not that I'm saying he's... Look, Peglet is too dumb <laughs> and probably lacks the fine motor skills to pick anything up and put in his pocket. Well, how could he pick the Nintsuki up when he's always got his hat in both hands? Exactly. <laughs> anyway, the Dowager Countess is like, no, I'm all about justice. That's why I fire him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the Dowager asks Isabel why she doesn't just set fire to the abbey and dance round it, painted with woad and howling. Uh, because Branson already tried that and it <laughs> failed? <laughs> yeah. He had to flee the country. 
Uh, Isabel says that she might do that if it would do any good, which I have to say, I struggle to find a scenario in which that would actually help anything. Right? Like, you could at least leave out the woad. (laughs) (laughs) I just had a horrible mental image. Ooh, let's move on. Yeah. Yeah. Like, we love you, uh, Isabel Crawley, but (laughs) Jesus. Yeah. Spratt comes in and apologizes. The Dowager says she's just glad to have an ally in there. Uh, However, he is there with the Netsuki. It apparently rolled into Betty's cleaning bucket, and she just now found it. I can't imagine that being in a bucket of dirty water helped out the Netsuki any. Right? Because it was made of ivory, and ivory is an extremely porous uh, material. Yeah. Also murder. Well, right. Just pointing that out. (laughs) Right. For Uh, the record. Anyway, but it's like, uh, but I mean, my impression actually was that it rolled into the bucket when it was empty. I guess which so. Which still seems not like going to be a super clean bucket. Clattering noise, you would think. Well, in any case, look, maybe Betty's as dumb as young Peglet. That's very Maybe possible. that's the real issue here. It's just that the Dowager's entire staff, <laughs> except for Spratt, <laughs> is really, really dumb. Yeah, and possibly Maley. Uh, in any case, the Dowager says that she is relieved uh, to have it back. Isabel asks if she's relieved or irritated. Spratt makes his getaway at this point. <laughs> yeah. Spratt's like, oh my god, I hate it when they're like this. Uh, Isabel asks if the Dowager will apologize. She says she will not. He may have sneaked it into the maid's bucket when nobody was looking. Why? Why? Why would anyone do that? Yeah. That's... When, if no one was looking, you might as well just put it in your pocket. Right. That's a bit of a reach. Also, he doesn't know where the maid's bucket is kept. <laughs> If, the, if this was part of some circuitous, <laughs> right, completely unpeg-like plan, right, to like secret it out of the house, like yeah. he doesn't even know how stairs work, <laughs> right. <laughs> Look, I realize I'm casting a lot of aspersions on Peglet, well, but I'm concerned that he may not show up very much after this, right. and I really want to get my licks in. Look, considering that he can't even figure out not to call Isabel your ladyship, like, we're we're justified. Yeah. There's, Entry there's, level for life. There's support in the text. Ooh, he should date Ivy. Oh, yeah. She'd feel smart for a change. <laughs> Isabel tells the Dowager that she hates to be wrong. The Dowager says that she is not familiar with the sensation. Boom! Yes. Isabel's like, oh, so you're determined to dig in your heels? And the Dowager says she is, because regardless of the Natsuki, Peglet certainly took the knife, and then she very defiantly rings the bell for Spratt. I think she is protesting, like, a bit much here. She is. Like, it. I mean, look, I understand, though, when Isabel Crawley decides to stick her meddling nose into your business. Right, and then the Natsuki comes in right in front of Isabel, like that. Yeah, you, that, really, you do. You gotta dig your heels in at that point. Yeah, well, you just, I mean, that's rough. It is in the hallway, hanging up the telephone, and uh, McGee comes by and asks, what's the matter? And she says that Michael has apparently vanished. No one's heard from him. No one can reach him. And McGee is sure it's just a failure of communication. Like, what is his game? Like, does was there some prophecy that he had to have a child? Like, is he the Highlander? <laughs> like- well, there can only be one, so maybe he impregnated her and then killed himself. Right, exactly. Like... Great scheme. I am so, so annoyed by this whole storyline. Yeah. Like, I don't appreciate, and I guess this is part of, like, the whole, like, Julian Fellows, like, women getting punished thing, which we've already kind of talked yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, But in this case, I'm like, I mean, I don't even, 
I don't like the pregnancy storyline, mm-hmm. but if Michael were still in the picture, it could be really interesting because maybe right. he would want her to have an abortion. Right. Being cosmopolitan. Right. Maybe, I don't know. Again, the idea of her marrying someone who is not a gentleman mm-hmm. provides to me more of the kind of conflict that this show excels at. Yeah. And this show is best. And I read this in a review of the, the Dame Nellie Melba episode, mm-hmm. which is probably a better name than the episode where Anna gets framed. <laughs> that's, that's fair. Uh, that when the action is confined to Downton, mm-hmm. just it's a significantly better show. And I yeah. think that's true because that's the point of the show. But it's like when Bates was in murder prison and, you know, when Isabel was at the Whore Institute. Right. It just doesn't feel the same. Yeah. And Julian yeah. Fellows clearly doesn't have enough facility to move seamlessly between a bunch of different locations. Yeah. So, if we, I mean, the whole thing didn't need the crazy wife in the attic. Well, and like, even London isn't bad, actually. Right. Yeah, no, like it didn't got... need the crazy wife in the attic. It didn't need this stupid disappearance. And it certainly doesn't need Edith to be pregnant. Yeah. Again, reserving judgment. We have no idea what could be coming next. Right. And, and, and again, Edith becoming pregnant in a vacuum isn't a horrible idea for a plot line. No, just, I just feel that yeah. they're going to really, uh, they're really going to preeclampsia the shit out of this storyline. <laughs> yep. Anyway, Edith wishes that Michael would just pick up the telephone. And I'm like, where is it that he should pick it up if you don't? Maybe <laughs> yeah, she yeah. means to, you know, place oh, an outgoing call, but yeah. I was still like, uh, right. Okay. Uh, McGee is sure that he will. Again, this family is awfully optimistic. They, they, considering <laughs> how much horrible shit always, you'd think they'd be a little bit tempered. Right. Well, remember. Their, like, remember Sybil's dead, <laughs> Matthew's dead, Lavinia died, William died. This is over 10 years. Well, yeah, I that's, guess so. That's actually still a lot. It is, especially since most of the people that have died on this show are not the old people right. who you would expect to die. Right. Yeah. In the servants' hall, Carson brings in the last post, which has a letter for Alfred, and he has got the gig. At the I Ritz. am rolling my eyes so hard. Right. Like, I don't totally hate... Right. I was kind of pleasantly surprised. Yeah. But then I was also like, why the fuck did we go through all that then last episode? Right. Agreed with that, but he's got it. And I do like the, I do like his whole like handling of the announcement. Uh huh. And when then he says that, uh, because somebody had dropped out, so he was the next in line. I was fifth. See, James or Jimmy, I was fifth. And Jimmy Kent's like, I never said you weren't. Which, and he uh, totally did. You, you definitely Secondly, did. Secondly, what I love about this scene is how the character of Jimmy Kent has so checked out of this show. Like, <laughs> right. The character of Jimmy Kent is like, oh my god, fucking yeah. seriously. He's like, I honestly don't care whether or not you get this job. I'm so bored. Yeah. I'm, <laughs> yeah. Daisy comes in and hears what has happened and is, you know, bummed. Um, everybody else is quite pleased for Alfred. Mm-hmm. And he says that he should go as soon as he can because he's already started to miss some of the, the classes or whatever. And Carson says, that's fine. He can manage with Jimmy Kent and Thomas. Sorry, James and Mr. Barrow. Mm-hmm. And Alfred is like, oh, well, I'll, I'll get going. And Carson's like, oh, wait until tomorrow. Yeah, slow your roll, Ginger. Yeah. <laughs> like, you still need to serve the aperitifs, okay? <laughs> that's right. Calm the F down. Yes. And notify the family. Jimmy asks Daisy, what is like, aren't you going to congratulate Alfred? Pat Moore jumps in and is like, Daisy, go put the kettle on. Leave this other kettle here. <laughs> <laughs> no, the good kettle. <laughs> right. 
Uh, Anna tells Alfred to give her any of his clothes that he might need washed before he leaves, and Baxter agrees and says that they'll get him ship shape. I love Baxter. I yeah. I want to know no, what Neil is because I'm like I I feel like She's I'm building really... up all this affection for you. Right. She's been really enjoyable. Yeah, and I just I want her, I want her to be okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Alfred is nervous. Jimmy Kent says he doesn't know why Alfred is nervous. And Carson says it's because he's intelligent and that only stupid people are foolhardy. Jimmy Kent, being stupid, right. does not pick up on this dig at him. Yeah, even though Carson makes it very clear. Remember, because I'm trying to remember, because like Carson liked Alfred better always, but then Jimmy right. just was more attractive, right? Yeah, yeah. That is... The Jimmy Kent story. <laughs> right, that's pretty much it. And the Alfred story, as far as yeah. that goes. Ivy comes into the kitchen and she tells Daisy that she's sorry that Alfred's leaving. And then Daisy gets her bitch on and says that Ivy's the one that drove him away by wanting Jimmy and not him. Uh, And look, I enjoy how much Daisy is like reaming Ivy in this episode. (laughs) But I'm also like, I know Daisy's not the sharpest tool in the shed. But logistically, like it doesn't do you any good if she had liked him and he would stay there. Like, anyway. Yeah. Daisy's dumb. This just chock full of stupid people. <laughs> this, this uh, Mrs. Patmore comes in and tells the girls to dry their tears and get on with dinner. Uh, Daisy literally does dry her tears. Yes. She's like, fine. Mrs. Patmore said so. Yeah. In the drawing room, Lord Grantham arrives. Uh, apparently, he just barely caught the last train, so they weren't expecting him. Uh, but he he's there. He ate in the restaurant car. In case you were wondering whether he ate, this episode is did. making me really hungry. <laughs> Uh, Edith says that Lord Grantham wasn't in London for long. He was just signing some papers for a trust for Billy Sheffield's son. McGee asks what that will entail. But um, <laughs> uh, he says it's mainly telling the boy not to drink so much and be nicer to his mother. So, spoiler alert: I doubt that Billy Sheffield's son is going to take that advice. <laughs> right. He will continue to get hammered and make fun of his mom. <laughs> Something. I'd like what I don't know. Uh, McGee tells Lord Grantham about Alfred, and Alfred, who is there serving drinks or whatever, says that he is sorry to cut and run. McGee says, oh, don't be sorry. And Mary says that he must return one day as a famous chef. Is Mary high? Uh, she's just patronizing. <laughs> she's getting into the uh, the Dowager's uh, secret <laughs> stash. <laughs> we call this Grantham perp. <laughs> <laughs> Violet Cush. (laughs) (laughs) That has has, have the people at ITV considered this branding because you know. Look, I'm a big fan of the Republic of Tea uh, (laughs) English Rose Downton Abbey blend. Mm -hmm. Frankly, it's a great conversation starter on my desk at work. So I would say ITV and residents of Washington and Denver or Colorado get on this. And we won 10%. <laughs> Gotta wet our beaks. That's right. Uh, Alfred then says that now that Lord Grantham is back, he wants to say that he's been very well treated at the house. And McGee's like, thank you. And then he keeps going. And they're all like looking at each other. He says that uh, he's very grateful to them and that Carson in particular has been a kind and wonderful teacher. Lord Grantham says, much more, and we shall all burst into tears. <laughs> and Rose gives this great little like, 
kind of eye roll, like not a, just an, of amusement. Like it's just it's it's funny. They're all like, "Geez, I just fall in love with Rose in this episode." Yeah, she is. I mean, we've always enjoyed her, despite the fact that he, she is a very like inferior Sybil replacement. Right, right. But this is where I feel like she starts to come into her own more, and she mm-hmm. is a delight. She is. She is. Also, I wish Alfred had been like, and uh, thanks for not being dicks about that time I tried to get Thomas thrown into the sodomy stuff. <laughs> right. Remember when that happened? We literally don't. <laughs> we don't. We don't remember. Was Matthew things. still alive? We don't. We don't talk <laughs> about that anymore. That's right. Uh, Lord Grantham asks how his birthday dinner is coming along, and Rose is like, "Oh, how did you know?" And he says that the Colthursts had called to RSVP to it. Bastards! I know. Why do you even invite the Colthursts anyway? <gasps> Nobody likes them. I know. Not even Colts. <laughs> Don't know what that means. Uh, Branson says that he thought they would all been sworn to secrecy, and McGee says, "Golly, people are so hopeless." It's the Sybil Crawley Memorial Golly. <laughs> That's right. Uh, Lord Grantham says he doesn't mind. He'll still, it doesn't have to be a surprise for him to enjoy it. Uh, Rose says that there may still be a surprise, and Lord Grantham says that he should hope so. Rather dickishly. Yeah. Like, you don't really deserve a surprise. After all you've done. Literally two seconds after saying it doesn't need to be a surprise for him. But. What an asshole. (laughs) Down in the servants' hall, Jimmy Kent asks Ivy out. Yeah. Uh, Mrs. Patmore asks what they'll see at the cinema. And Jimmy Kent says, The Sheik. Yes. The Sheik, uh, I should have written it down because I, I looked it up, but it's, uh, it's a pretty racist movie. It's basically about... Are you telling me yeah. oh. that a movie in 1920 about the Middle East... Here's, here, well, I guess what you I'm know, saying next is... Next you'll be telling me that Jake Gyllenhaal plays the titular Prince of Persia. <laughs> that would be shocking. No, it's basically like, you remember the uh, the original version of the opening song from Aladdin? Mm-hmm. That's basically the Sheik, <laughs> as far as I can tell. Uh, <laughs> so Robin Williams is in it? Uh, no. Rudolph Valentino. The Robin Williams of his day? <laughs> we'll, we'll go with that. Was he on Coke? As far as we know. <laughs> uh, but he he plays the titular Sheik. He, well, he was Italian, so as far as anybody was concerned, basically the same thing. I can't believe they allowed a filthy Italian to become a big <laughs> film star like that. Well, it took... I mean, that's they allowed him to become a film star playing things like the Sheik. I see. Which he wound up... He got really annoyed by being typecast as like exotic types actors always get mad about being typecast like half the cast have gone with the wind committed suicide via barbiturates specifically because they were typecast into the roles they played in gone with the wind yeah so uh that's a bummer yeah um. sorry actors but <laughs> yeah. you know people uh people don't like variety yeah maybe maybe try not acting yeah if you want happiness. live on your live on your residuals and just like i don't know smoke opium or something yeah maybe not do that Moving on. <laughs> yeah, the Sheik, a uh, reasonably high-born English woman, uh, winds up in the desert and falls in love with the Sheik, whatever. And then the happy ending is that it turns out that the Sheik was actually not really uh, Arabic or whatever, that he had a British mother and Spanish father or something like that. So she's like, Whew, okay, great. I can actually marry him. So much for my desert fever. <laughs> right. Anyway, and there's there's more shenanigans in it, but that's that's what I remember is that the happy ending is that he's secretly white, <laughs> essentially. That's so depressing. Yeah. So Mrs. Patmore says she likes that Rudolph Valentino, and he makes her shiver all over. And Carson <laughs> is disturbed, as 
as are we. This I is mean, the most overtly sexual we've seen Mrs. Patmore. Yeah. It's like your grandmother talking about her vibrator. <laughs> it's not okay. Uh, Anna then suggests to Bates that they go out on a date and that Lady Mary wouldn't mind. Uh, no word about what Lord Grantham would think. But Bates says it has been a long time and Anna agrees that it's been too long since they've gone out on a date. Mrs. Hughes asks asks Carson if he'll send a message to hire Molesley in Alfred's place. Mm-hmm. But uh our, Carson's unabashed hatred for Molesley <laughs> continues. Right. Uh so no, he is not going to do that. He says that Molesley agreed to work at Downton Abbey the way Kaiser Bill agreed to abdicate, which I don't think is an accurate yeah, analogy. That's not great. Uh but he doesn't want someone to work at Downton who has to be dragged in. Mrs. Patmore tries to speak up for Molesley, and Carson just does not care. He does not. I'm so. This is the part of the thing that we hate. By right. the way, we it are the, super the whole sick thing. of the ongoing Carson Molesley feud. Right. Uh, now here's a curious thing. Mm-hmm. This next scene aired on PBS airs streaming in pbs.org not in the dvd yeah which we just received yeah so this is the first episode we'd watched on the dvd and there are three different places where there's scenes just cut out which is weird because it used to be the opposite way right exactly although there would occasionally be a scene that was included but anyway it's just it's very weird and this is all very good like character development type stuff right yeah (sighs) so anyway hey itv get your shit together yeah here here in this missing scene, uh, it's in the drawing room. Uh, Edith announces that she's going up to bed, and McGee is as well. She has a gassy dinner tomorrow, which uh, turns out to be some orphanage that she's like on the board of or whatever. And she assures Lord Grantham that he does not have to come <laughs> to this dinner. Uh, Branson also heads up, and so it's just Lord Grantham and Mary. Lord Grantham goes and pours himself a drink. Isis basks by the fire. She's really got the best life out of anybody in this yeah. joint. yeah. I'm glad she started showing up in the last couple of episodes. I can't believe she's still alive. Right. She's, you know, nine years old. Yeah. In, uh, in, in human years. Right. Which is, uh, what? 63? 63. In human? Yeah. 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 She's an old puppy. Yeah. Mary tells Lord Grantham that she had gone down to the pig field (laughs) with Branson. Lord Grantham says he'll need to get a good man to manage the pigs. And so uh, Mary is pleased that he is actually, like, going along with this pig plan. But he says that he believes in ca- in cabinet rule. Once the decision has been reached, they all must support it. Uh, and Mary says that she must kiss him for that and does. Gross. Yeah, it's weird. In a downstairs hallway, Thomas and Baxter are standing there. And Thomas thinks that the upstairs folk may be preparing for layoffs. Baxter says that there's absolutely no reason Rose would be involved in this. <laughs> Very true. Again, Baxter, uh, unlikely voice of reason. <laughs> Thomas says he isn't sure, but then Thomas did get punked by Hughes and right. so- tells Baxter she must find out more. Baxter asks how, and Thomas says, oh, you'll think of something. And I'm like, free Baxter! <laughs> yeah. God, get her out of this. This is so stupid. And also, Thomas, you need a haircut. Well, that's true. I am over it. Yeah, well... Not going to happen. In the Bates cottage, uh, Bates lights a lantern. Which is extremely not helpful. I mean, maybe you guys would be less depressed if you got wired for electricity. Yeah, like you should really consider it. But it is actually, you very rarely see in any film or television uh, just how dark Mm -hmm. everything was before electricity. Yeah. It was super dark. Mm -hmm. 
Anna says that she will book their reservation for dinner tomorrow. Um, and she says that it can't be the same as it used to be, meaning their marriage, but she wants to make new good memories so that it's not like they were only ever happy before. Bates says that he's happy whenever he looks at her, which causes Anna to start crying because he's so... Broody. Broody and, like, clearly insincere mm-hmm. when he says that stuff. He says She says everything is shadowed. Uh, Bates says, you're right. We'll have one evening where we don't think about it and leave it all behind. And Anna thanks him for that. Up in McGee's room, she tells Baxter that she'll change before the gong that day. This is the next day. Yeah. yeah. And she says that she will be dining in some frightful hotel. <laughs> Baxter asks what she'd like to wear. And McGee doesn't want to insult these people. <laughs> McGee may not have been the best choice to be on the board for this orphanage. <laughs> anyway... Baxter suggests that she wears something elegant but sensible, and McGee says she'll let Baxter choose. And then Baxter tries to drop hints and say that there's talk of big unspecified changes below stairs, and McGee is like, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. Just pick out my, literally, you have one job. Pick out my clothes, put them on me. Right. I'm not, I'm not doing this with you. Yeah. In the servants' hall, Alfred is all packed up and heading out. Ivy says she knows he'll get what he wants. Patmore tells him that he's as good as any Frenchman, no matter what they say. <laughs> uh, Baxter wishes him luck. Thomas says, don't do anything I wouldn't do. And Patmore says, well, that gives you a bit of leeway. Uh, she means bum sex, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, that leeway was the euphemism at the time. <laughs> Alfred asks where Daisy is. Patmore says she's in the kitchen. Uh, Carson tries to hurry him out, but Alfred says he's got to dot, dot, dot. Uh, he then uh, gathers himself for a moment in the hallway and then strides casually into the kitchen and says, well, I'm off, Daisy. Daisy does not look up. Just she's rolling some dough and says, oh, well, goodbye then. Alfred says that he is sorry if he hurt Daisy. He says that she's a good person is going to make somebody very happy someday, but I'm afraid it were never going to be me. Uh- Sure, he did make someone very happy. He died, and now you own a farm. (laughs) That is all true. Daisy does not look up, so Alfred turns and heads out. But then Daisy calls back and says, good luck. Uh, She hopes he does well, and she thinks that he will. Then Carson comes by and is like, seriously, Alfred, let's go. They're not going to hold the train for you. Yeah, especially not you. (laughs) Right. They might hurry it up if they think they can get away without you. (laughs) But he, he thanks Daisy, says that it means a lot to him. Uh, that she said that and then uh, heads on out. At the gate of the Dower House, a car containing the Dowager Countess drives off. Uh, and then Isabel, who's got her umbrella, steps out from hiding and heads up the drive with the pixicato tiptoe of a mischievous skunk. <laughs> Indeed. It is so, so ridiculous. This Quite scene, ridiculous, But we yes. kind of like it. <laughs> Spratt answers the door and tells Isabel that she's just missed the Dowager Countess. Isabel thanks him, turns around, and then pretends to have a dizzy spell and asks if she can come in and sit down. And Spratt sputters and says, oh, of course, you know, I'd hate for, you know, a rich person to die on my hands. (laughs) That's true. Even though Isabel, not the most convincing of actors. Uh, So in the study, as Spratt shows her in, uh, she says she doesn't need water or anything. She just needs to sit quietly for a moment. So Spratt says to ring if she needs anything. Then Inspector Crawley takes over and uh, starts poking around to uh, search for things. Peglet, she wrote. <laughs> yes. And she eventually, in fact, tracks down the paper knife. It was down the, the cushions in the side of a chair. Uh, so she, well, she says, Eureka. 
To no one. To no one. Then rings for Sprat, says that she's feeling better, and is like, oh, here's this knife I found. Uh, Sprat gives his usual Sprat confused look uh, and says that the Dowager will be pleased. Isabel, she isn't certain that the Dowager will be pleased, but she hopes she is. Which the hell she hopes that. She yeah. hopes the Dowager will not be pleased at all. Uh, we see Mosley walking up the path to Downton, right. backed by the moor. <laughs> he knocks on the door of the Carson Cave, and he says he was at the train station renewing the gravel out front. Right. And ran into it had been out Alfred. from the library too long. Yeah. So. <laughs> uh, Carson's a dick. Mosley just, uh, we're not even going to do this. Right. This is just stupid. Yeah. Spratt shows Isabel and Clarkson into the Dowager's study. She says she is casually reading a book, and it says, to what do I owe this treat? Clarkson says, oh, you've changed for dinner. We'll come back tomorrow. And the Dowager says that her curiosity will not brook such a delay. Isabel asks if Spratt gave Dowager the knife, which he did, and then asks if the Dowager is going to suggest that Piglet snuck the knife back in or for some reason, or when he realized what trouble he was in or something like that. The Dowager, as she is ringing for Spratt, says, well, it's a thought. Uh, Isabel just rants like for a few seconds about the injustice and etc. And Clarkson says, "Hold your horses, Lady Crawl or Mrs. Crawley," mm-hmm. which the Dowager thanks him for and says that if you will just put up your cudgels, and asks the arriving Sprat if Piglet has brought in the vegetables. Isabel's like, "What? Uh, he has. He's in the kitchen." The Dowager asks Sprat to send in Piglet. Sprat is like, "To the drawing room," and she says, "Well, have him take off his boots if it will soothe your nerves." <laughs> Uh, so Spratt backs out to do that. Isabel says she doesn't understand, and the Dowager says that she will not understand until she comes out from behind her prejudice. <laughs> uh, Piglet comes in without any f- boots on. Uh, they, they have a very specific shot of his stockinged feet. The Dowager asks Piglet to inform Mrs. Crawley of what transpired between them. Pig goes, what? <laughs> and she says, tell, him, tell her what we said. Uh, so he says, yeah, uh, the Dowager apologized to him and hired him back. And uh, so Spratt hustles Piglet out of there as fast as he can. And Clarkson says, well, that's game set and match to the Dowager Countess. And it is. Yeah. Suck it, Isabel. Yeah. Isabel is at a loss for words. Up in Mary's room, Anna is dressing Mary and has told her that she and Bates are dining at the Netherby, which is apparently quite something. Yeah. Uh, she doesn't think they've eaten in a hotel since they were married. And Mary tells her not to rush back. It won't kill her to get herself to bed. <laughs> Cut to Mary lying dead, strangled on her own tiara. <laughs> Anna says she'll be back in time. And Mary tells Anna that uh, Mr. Napier and Mr. Blake will be arriving for Lord Grantham's birthday dinner, which will be rather a baptism of fire. Uh, although it's not clear for whom. <laughs> right. Anna asks how long they'll be staying, and Mary says that it's open-ended, which Granny would never approve of. Uh, forget Granny. I don't approve of that. Right. Never, ever, ever, cousins. Yeah. Never mm-hmm. let anyone stay at your house for an indeterminate period of time. Here, here. It is a bad move Agreed. for you and for them. Yeah. Nobody, everybody will end up miserable. Uh-huh. Uh, we then have two scenes in a row, both again cut from the DVD. In the first one in Lord Grantham's room, he is telling Bates that it seems unusual for his valet to go on a date, I guess, uh, but that McGee would tell him that it's the, they're living in the 20s and he must accept it. 
So I guess that's a yes. Well, apparently they went on dates before. Like, <laughs> right. <sighs> In any case, Bates says he'll be back before Lord Grantham comes up. Lord Grantham tells him to enjoy himself and asks if this means that all is well again. Uh, Bates says that it's better because he now knows what was making Anna unhappy. Lord Grantham's like, well, I guess that's something. I don't really care that much. Right. Down in the kitchen, Mrs. Hughes asks Carson why he didn't cancel Jimmy's night off once he knew that Alfred was leaving. And Carson says he wasn't thinking, which seems very un-Carson-like. It really does. But Mrs. Patmore says that Jimmy and Ivy haven't left yet. But Mrs. Hughes says it will seem harsh since they've been looking forward to going out and seeing the chic. Right. All eyes turn to Thomas, who says they might as well give him an apron. He'll do the washing up. Carson says Thomas can remember how to foot. <laughs> and again refuses to summon Molesley to help out. Right. Carson and Thomas leave, and Mrs. Patmore tells Mrs. Hughes uh, it's... She just said, it's going to be harder than that, referring to getting Molesley the job. Yeah. The maitre d' at Netherby is a prat. Oh, he's a dick, man. He's not cool. Yeah. I eventually figured out that who he reminded me of was uh, Mr. Collins. From Pride and Prejudice. Indeed. Um, The Annie version. Exactly. (laughs) He claims that he doesn't see any reservation for Bates. He's never heard that name. Doesn't know what they're talking about. Possibly it was lost in the mail. Um, (laughs) Etc. He uh, is not going to let them. He says they're quite full because the Countess of Grantham is there with a large party. (laughs) (laughs) What a maroon. Yeah. Uh, Anna says that they know her and McGee walks up at that moment with her McGee smile in full force. McGee is our favorite part of this episode, yeah, by the way. She is in full McGee mode. Yeah. It is really, it's like season one again. It is. Like, just, like, great while also being, like, weird. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just, just really fun. And here in particular, uh, the Major D says that these people claim to know McGee, and McGee says that she knows them both very well. Bates says there seems to be some sort of mix-up with their table, and McGee turns to the Major D and says that she's sure it can be sorted out with just, like, the most vicious, like, smile glare. I think she's hypnotizing him. I think she learned some witch tricks from that witch. <laughs> it's possible. No, I mean, she she smiles him, like, right into the floor. And, <laughs> and uh, he's already pretty short. Yeah, well, right. Uh, so Major D is like, of course, of course, and, and heads off to find them a table. McGee turns to the Bateses and says, well, thank God he's a snob. Half American, all scammer. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Land of the free, home of the grifter. <laughs> USA. <laughs> um, Anna says that they didn't mean to, like... Drop her name. Right. And, and McGee says, she sure they didn't, but let's not spoil the effect now. And she says that she really wishes she could join them, but she'd better be heading back to her orphanage biddies. <laughs> uh, the maitre d' shows the Bates to their table and asks them to excuse the little hiccup. There won't be another one. Bates hands the maitre d' his cane. It doesn't say anything. It's yeah. a pretty powerful boom yeah. on Bates' part. It's nice. Agreed. Back at the homestead, as the Granthams all go into dinner, uh, Carson hands Edith a letter that had been overlooked in the evening post, much like Edith herself. That's right. He was like, Edith, I don't believe we have an Edith here. <laughs> oh, you mean that homely girl who's <laughs> always around? <laughs> So it says, I am writing to confirm my findings of our recent consultation in that your signs and symptoms are consistent with those of the first trimester of pregnancy. I look forward to being of further assistance to you. Right. So. Okay. Hold on. (laughs) Now. Okay. 
fact. Yes. One of the most persistent afflictions <laughs> in human history from time immemorial is uh, ladies getting knocked up. Right. So, doctor. <laughs> look, and I don't think, you know, there was not a test at this point. I should have looked that up. Well, yeah. Ah, pregnancy tests. Future thing to look up. Very much so. Um, so, presumably this doctor was not checking for traces of HCG in her urine. One would think. When someone comes in and says, hey, I missed a period, I feel kind of nauseated and bloated, uh, why did it take this long apparently, and why did you have to put it in a letter? Right. Apparently, did he have to go apparently, like, meditate right, on it? Right. That's what the doctor said. He was like, well, you know what, man? Sounds like you're pregnant, but I just kind of want to like sleep on it and just ponder. Does that really seem like pregnancy or like what? Yeah, like maybe I don't know, like just <laughs> Listen, other stuff. I'm kind of drunk right now. <laughs> He's uh, Daniel Radcliffe <laughs> in that Young Doctor Snowbook. He's all hopped up on ether or whatever. <laughs> That's right. Um. Anyway, so Edith is obviously upset. Although, again, anyway, we yeah. all we knew. Yeah, we knew. We did. We knew. Uh, Lord Grantham notices that she looks stricken. <laughs> so he asks if anything's the matter and she says no. And I'm always, I mean, I, I probably would have done the same thing mm-hmm. if I were in her, like, but there's also not really any profit in delaying. Yeah. I don't know. I guess it's know. kind of all the same. Like, yeah. you're going to have the thing in nine months regardless. Yeah. So. Well, and she's still holding out hope that she'll be able to consult with Gregson before. And, like, get a shotgun wedding going before. Right. You know. Yeah. So. Uh, in Hughes's parlor, Molesley comes in uh, and asks Hughes and Patmore, who happens to be there, if Carson has changed his mind. But no, no dice. Uh, so he's like, well, I guess I'm just going to have to go back to mending roads. Did you ever stop mending roads? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Hughes says that not to give up so easily, and she says she's going to go get some hot water. Uh, so. Because that solves everyone's problems. Apparently so. Like, he's not giving birth. <laughs> that you know of. <laughs> he hasn't gotten a letter back from that doctor. Anything's possible. <laughs> outside uh jimmy kent and ivy are coming back from the movies and uh jimmy kent invites ivy to sit on some bench which ivy there's your first mistake (laughs) right he's like oh there's a seat there and i'm like did you go a different way on the way out (laughs) anyway uh jimmy kent is admiring the moon which he says is lit up like a light bulb yeah uh not very poetical that's (laughs) very true he asks what Ivy makes of Valentino, and she says that she thinks he's slithery. And if she were Agnes Ayres, the actress playing the female lead in right. The Chic, uh, she says she'd gone. She'd have gone straight back to London. And like, was that an option? <laughs> right. Like, well, she does say as soon as she could find a boat. Yeah. But yeah. also, you're in the desert anyway. Look, <laughs> right. Again, Ivy, dumb as a post. Right. Jimmy Kent uh, asks if she doesn't like romance, and she says she wouldn't say that. So they start kissing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jimmy Kent then immediately. Tries to put his hand up her skirt. Yeah. And uh, Ivy correctly jumps up and tells him to get off of her. Jimmy Kent says that he's been nice to her. Uh, he's taken her to the cinema and the theater. True. And he's never been that nice to any other girl. Uh, he also got her wasted at the pub that time. Anyway, very true. Ivy asks if she's supposed to feel lucky. And he says that it's dishonest to not give him anything in return. Right. She says she's not playing his game and he'd better get used to that and then storms off. Yeah. So, like, good job, Ivy. Because this was extremely shady of him. Like, I'm not at all surprised. But it's just like, ugh. Yeah. It's so shady. Yeah. Back at the Netherby. And again, the first few lines of the scene also cut. That's the last one. Um 
Uh, Bates is saying that he should have paid the bill, so Anna apparently just did, and she says that the... the, She's one of these new women, you know. I guess so. And she says that after all, the date was her idea. And Bates says that he was glad to come, that he enjoyed it. It has been a night away from the shadows. And then holds his glass up like, here's to us. And again, it's so unpleasant. It's really weird because it's like, I feel like we interpret this in two different ways and possibly sort of like because of who we are sort of mapping ourselves onto. Possibly. Because I keep getting mad at Anna because I feel like Anna keeps bringing it up. And I'm not saying that Bates isn't being disingenuous. But I also, I mean, no, and it's like, and I don't like that I feel this way because it mm-hmm. feels very victim blamey to well, be like, Anna, think- like, just get over it. But in this case, I think Bates very clearly did bring it up. And, and. Well, like, he should not have said, yeah. I yeah. felt like more in the scene in the cottage mm. that she just kind of like. And I know that but she's going to keep. Look, what he should be. Here's how I, I think yeah. of it Anna needs to be more mindful of bringing it up, and Bates needs to work harder. And like he, you know, if he doesn't want to keep harping on it, he needs to be like, "Listen, you need to stop doing this to yourself." But he's obviously plotting his revenge anyway. Right. Well, Bates, I just because I just see it as she just keeps being sad because Bates keeps lying to her and pretending that he's fine with things that he's not. You know, he she knows that he is being dishonest with her. I guess I just don't think Brennan Coyle's a very good actor. Right, but I don't. I don't think that's the problem here. <laughs> I, mean, I know. Like, yeah. No, but I don't I don't even really get those nuances in his performance is my point. He just seems like he's being as obtuse as usual. Right. I see what you're saying. In any case, uh Anna says starts crying and and says that she was a fool to think they could leave it behind. And this is where again the scene just starts with Bates saying here's to us uh-huh. and Anna starting to cry, which really it's messes up really the scene. Really weird. Yeah. Anyway, Bates says that he's sorry that it's his fault every time he remembers what she's been through. He wants to murder. Anna says, but I'm not a victim. That's not who I am. The worst part is that you see me as a victim, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, and Bates says that he doesn't see her that way. He sees her as a woman he should have protected and that he's the failure. So a victim? Right. And this is, and, and then. All right. You're making a very good point here. And I think I wasn't paying attention during this scene. We we watched the episode. Fair fair enough. Um, and then McGee sadly interrupts. Sailing in on her alien cloud of (laughs) smiles. Right. Interrupts. And it's a real shame because this feels like they're actually getting somewhere Uh with really talking to each other about it. McGee comes up and she says, uh, she is offering them a lift home. She's heading home and there's room in the car. So. Stark is the name of the new chauffeur, incidentally. Yes. Thank you. Anna says that it seems... I hate to interrupt, but (laughs) winter is coming. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Anna says it seems an imposition, but McGee says, no, it isn't. And this will guarantee them a table at the Netherby for the rest of their lives. I just really like how much joy... McGee was like, this night was going to suck. Right. And now I've gotten to like... You know, strike a blow for equality at this frightful hotel. <laughs> right. Well, but I like this too because in, I think you see there's another couple of things in this episode where McGee um, dates herself. I mean, she is very forward thinking, mm-hmm. but she's also still very much a product of like the Gilded Age. Right. So right. she thinks, you know, she dines in hotels because that is what is done now, mm-hmm. but she still hates it. Yeah. Yeah. And I like, you know, I yeah. like, you know, she's not a dick about things the way Lord Grantham is, but she still does in some ways prefer the old ways. Right. No. Yeah. That's, that's, that's a good point. Uh, so she tells the maitre d' to get 
all of their coats. Which is great. Yeah. Uh, McGee asks if they've had a good evening. Bates says that they have. And McGee says not to sound so hesitant or the Major D will kill himself. <laughs> uh, but Anna says, no, they've had a lovely time. Back in the servants' hall, in possibly one of my favorite downstairs scenes I've ever seen, mm-hmm. I guess it, I know, it may not quite pass the Bechtel test, but like, we don't get a lot of scenes in this show of women sitting around talking about the female condition. Like, yeah. even when Sybil was really involved in the suffragette movement, yeah. suffragist movement, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. You know, we didn't get to see a lot of her talking with other women about their position. Mm-hmm. And this is so fantastic because it's Ivy, Daisy, Mrs. Hughes, and Mrs. Patmore all kind of lamenting the way that men view women and the way that they treat them. Right. Right. So Mrs. Hughes asks Ivy if Jimmy can't hurt her, and Ivy says no. And Mrs. Hughes is like, thank God. Oh, right. We've already got one rape <laughs> subplot this season. We can't handle another one. <laughs> but uh And I gain a little bit of respect for Ivy in this scene, even though ultimately it's a big diss on her. But when right. she says, he asks for things that no man should want before they're married. And I'm just very impressed by her self-respect, I guess. Yeah. I mean, not that it was that uncommon for this time period. Right. But just she is so firm in her conviction. Yeah. And I really admire that. Mm -hmm. You know, granted, I was a virgin until an embarrassingly late time in my life. (laughs) Well. Uh, But still, like, I mean, you know, had I had the opportunity sooner, (laughs) I am sure that despite any misgivings, I would have been like, woo! Yeah. Let's do this. (laughs) Um Anyway, Mrs. Patmore says that she thinks women are a bit more clear about that than men are, Mm -hmm. which... uh, it's so true, and it's like, you know, I hate to get into, like, the Evo psych, but, you know, men just seem to care a lot less about the consequences of having sex. Right. Well, I and, mean, there's a good reason yeah. for that, as Edith is learning. Yeah. Anyway, but uh, Mrs. Patmore is phenomenal in this scene. Yeah. And Ivy says that Jimmy's been sweet-talking her to have his way, and she thought he was so nice. Because you're so very dumb, Ivy. <laughs> right. Uh, Mrs. Patmore wonders how many other women have said that since the Norman Conquest. And I would say uh, also before that. <laughs> well. Ivy says that Alfred never would have done such a thing. And uh, Daisy says, don't start. This yeah. is phenomenal. Yeah. She tells Ivy that she broke Alfred's heart. So now he's alone in a city that terrifies him, mm-hmm. uh, which seems like Daisy's projecting a little bit. Well, whatever. Right. She broke Daisy's heart by driving Alfred away. And that if she'd have, if she'd have discovered her good opinion of Alfred earlier, she just spared all of them a lot of grief and us this entire subplot. <laughs> right. Uh, and then Daisy's out. Yeah. She just, she drops the rolling pin and <laughs> <Yeah>. she bounces. <laughs> so Ivy, again, in typical dumb fashion, wonders what that was all about. And Mrs. Hughes says, Oh, I think it's about the fact that you had it coming. <laughs> and, uh, Mrs. Patmore throws up her hands and is like, uh, kind of. Yeah. And to clarify, yes, this is about the fact that Ivy had Daisy telling her off coming, not that Right. Ivy had Jimmy Kent attempting to finger bang her on a bench coming. <laughs> right. Because nobody likes that. No. That's, somebody tried to do that to me once. And I was like, I am not 14. <laughs> like, what are you trying to do here? Uh, no, but I mean, just a great scene. Yeah. Really love that scene. Mm-hmm. In, I presume, McGee's room, Mary is telling McGee that it was good of her to give the Bateses a lift. Uh, McGee says that she is afraid that things have gone wrong between them and the camera pans at this point to reveal Baxter overhearing everything. 
Uh, but she says, McGee says that it's not just a case of a marriage gone sour, that Anna has been hurt somehow and that Bates feels like he should have protected her. And then she's like, oh, this is not to leave this room, Baxter. And Baxter's like, of course, I'm not being blackmailed, but that's what you think. <laughs> Edith's crying in the library, presumably because she can't find the Gutenberg Bible. <laughs> that would bring me comfort. <laughs> Lord Grantham comes in and says, my most darling girl. What's the matter? Edith correctly says she isn't his most darling girl. <laughs> right. uh, that would be Isis. <laughs> Lord Second Grantham- place, Matthew. <laughs> <laughs> he was the prettiest. <laughs> Lord Grantham insists that he loves his children equally. Edith says she doesn't know why people say that, since it's almost never true. Mm-hmm. And also, he has uh, pretty much forgotten that Sybil existed. Right. That Okay, that's not totally true. He did mention her by name in the previous episode. That's fair. But still. Yeah. Uh, yeah, interesting fact. I think it is true of my parents. Oh. So, suck it, everyone else. <laughs> Boom. Lord Grantham asks uh, if she's upset about Gregson and whether he should get involved and send someone to Germany. Right. Edith should have said, no, 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 Papa. <laughs> Things are already fucked up enough. I know, I know. He sends somebody to Germany. He's like, I'm afraid we're at war now for some reason. I don't know what happened. <laughs> oh, I suppose I should have sent someone who could speak German. <laughs> Edith says that Gregson's office has already sent someone to Munich and they're working with the German police. Was he raptured? What is going on? Anyway. I'm very annoyed by how oblique this whole plot is. Right. Anyway, Lord Grantham, again, with this optimism that I don't understand, <laughs> insists that she just has to be patient. Edith, much like the viewer at home, also just wants to know what happened. She is worried that he's been trapped or falsely in prison or killed. She just wants to know and she can't plan her life in this fog, especially right. now that she knows there's, you know, uh, a tiny Gregson on the way. <laughs> right. Now that this spaced out doctor has finally gotten his act together. Whoa. <laughs> Let me get my head together. <laughs> Lord Grantham says he's sure Gregson's not dead. And Edith correctly points out that he isn't sure because nobody can be. Mm-hmm. And oh my God, can we please just throw me a freaking bone here, Baron <laughs> Fellows? What is going on? Yeah. Again, and see, that's the thing. If it was just Gregson or just Baxter, we'd still hate it. But the fact that both of these have been going on for multiple episodes. I know. I miss Lang. That's <laughs> how bad their backstories are. Wow. I miss Lang. Yikes. Mm-hmm. I wonder what happened to Lang. Yeah, I completely forgot about Lang. Right? Yeah. A lot has happened on this show. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, so in the servants' hall, Thomas is asking Baxter how Anna was hurt, and Baxter says she doesn't know anything else. So Thomas just says to keep her ears open. Uh, and then he asks her, what's the matter? Baxter says that she doesn't like telling tales. Thomas says that she knew the conditions when she came here. Which were? Right. Baxter says that McGee is polite and considerate and doesn't deserve to be spied on. Here, here. <laughs> But Thomas says that she must decide where her first loyalties are, to McGee or to Thomas. Uh, McGee's paying her salary? And, right. like, listen, Thomas, this is a family that didn't fire you when they found out that you were a raging homosexual. <laughs> right. In defiance of gods and British law. That's, that's right. These people clearly <laughs> do not... Bates is a convicted murderer. Right. Like, and if And listen... McGee will not let... McGee didn't fire O'Brien, for God's sake. O'Brien killed her baby! (laughs) I know she didn't know that, but Jesus! Look, this family does not know how to look out for their own best interests. Yeah. Look, Baxter's in with McGee. That trumps 
everything. Yeah, for some reason. Yeah. Anyway, Baxter says, have it your own way, and Thomas says that he intends to. Also, Baxter just always looks so stricken. Like, does she have lupus? <laughs> Is that the big secret? No one must ever know. <laughs> Out front, in a nice little bit of product placement, a Fiat pulls up with oh, Napier, wow. and uh, who we must assume is Blake. Yeah. McGee and Mary greet them in the front hall, and Mary, uh, a little bit too enthusiastically, <laughs> honestly, says that they're anxious to do their bit. Blake's like, uh, what are you talking about? <laughs> and she says that she knows that they're there to advise landowners on how to get through this crisis. And Blake is like, uh, listen, yeah. this guy may have misled you a little bit, <laughs> so we could save the government some money we're more uh, about corpse looting here That's yeah sort of our this plan. is more yeah uh he says the government knows that estates are being sold and they have every variety of problem to study and mary says uh that of course they're there to help but blake says no they just kind of want to see if society's changing fundamentally and whether or not it's going to affect food production uh mary a bit slow on the uptake <laughs> says so you don't care about the owners just the food supply and blake concurs and Mary feels that that's very mean-spirited. Uh, Mr. Blake says that Mr. Lloyd George is more concerned with feeding the population than rescuing the aristocracy, which doesn't seem mean-spirited to him at all. Uh, agreed. And I would also like to correct myself. A week or two ago, I said that Lord jo- Lloyd George wasn't in power at this point. But I went back and looked it up, and I had misread the 1918 election. Lloyd George came in second, but in the coalition that was formed, he wound up staying on as prime minister. In October of 22, he's going to get kicked out, and Bonner Law, who... <laughs> you know when it's written down, it looks like Boner? <laughs> it, it, it does, which is pretty fun. But he will be prime minister as of October of 22. Evelyn Napier, always a joy, <laughs> says that they may be disappointing guests if they are expected to stay up until 2 a.m. being witty. Mary doesn't expect Mr. Blake to be witty. Yeah. Lord Grantham blunders in. That's <laughs> how long they'll be staying. Blake says they'll stay until the job is done, and Napier says to be sure and get rid of them when they become a nuisance. So, um, right now? <laughs> McGee intervenes and says that the gong is rung at 7. They meet in the drawing room at 8 and says that today is Robert's birthday. Mary says that Mr. Blake must be witty tonight, and afterwards they'll lower their expectations. Yeah. And already, get a room, you two. <laughs> right. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Sam and Diane much? <laughs> in the servants' hall, Molesley arrives and is offered a chair, but he's not there to eat. Uh, apparently, Hughes asked him to come help out by serving the servants' tea. He's, like, wearing an apron and everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, Carson is stunned by this development. And Hughes plays all innocent, like, oh, Patmore needed the help. And Molesley was mostly isn't proud. Um, and I just want to also shout out to Thomas, who is in the frame for this whole conversation. And is, like, amused by it. But doesn't, like, pulling focus. Yeah. But he's just subtly, like, oh. Well done, Rob Collier James. Yes. Something like that. Yeah. Uh, Carson says that he gives in. He cannot fight a war on every front. Uh, Carson, you were fighting zero wars on zero fronts at this point. Yeah, you were just being and a dick. can you stop making these military comparisons? <laughs> the war's over, as you are frequently fond of reminding us. <laughs> anyway, he tells Mosley to get the livery and he can start tonight. And Mosley thanks him and heads off. And Carson says, don't forget the gloves. So whatever. 
Uh, Carson Senta says, well, of course we'll have to call him, what is his name? <laughs> and Hughes isn't sure either. She thinks maybe it's Joseph. I think it is Joseph, it actually. Is. We, we do learn that, yeah. Even if we already knew. It's stated. <laughs> Rose then comes in. So, of course, they all stand up. And she says that she wants to make a speech. Uh, Mrs. Hughes may have told them, but Mrs. Hughes says she hasn't told them yet. She says that she is making an announcement that as a treat for Lord Grantham, a London band is coming to play after dinner. And Jimmy Kent says, a London band? That's the Berries. This is the best show on TV. <laughs> for only that line from our least favorite character. <laughs> That's the Berries. Yeah. <laughs> Rose says that they're from a nightclub called The Lotus, and Daisy is very impressed by that. Uh, and Rose says that it must be a surprise. Even McGee doesn't know exactly what the surprise is. Carson asks if McGee will be pleased by it, and Rose says, oh, she'll be thrilled. Boy, blind optimism, Rose. Yeah. It'll get you far. Yeah. Uh, Jimmy Kent says that they'll look after her secret. Uh, Rose asks them to make the band comfortable. She knows that musicians are a little outside of their daily round. And Carson says, oh, we may be Yorkshiremen, but we do know a little of life in the city. And then Jack Ross comes in, and everybody is like, oh, my God. Record scratch. <laughs> yeah, very much so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Carson, like, clatters a cup, and yeah. So there's a long, awkward moment, and then Rose turns to Jack and says, welcome to Downton. It's a pretty good intro. Yeah. Okay, and that brings us to our recurring segment, in which our very own Jazzy Jezebel Kelly will take us backwards and show us some fashion and fashion backwards. Uh, yes, once again, fashion backwards, mostly devoid of fashion. <laughs> we are, we're For, going to be dealing with some social phenomena. Yeah. Uh, continue to be very angry, <laughs> as this was a very consistent segment, until everyone decided to stop keeping track of fashion yeah. in this era. Anyway. Very sorry. We'll keep working on it. Hopefully, this will rectify itself. However, we're going to talk a little bit about jazz in Britain in 1920. Mm -hmm. And uh, also, though, I want to provide a little bit of context uh, for race relations at this point. Also very difficult to track down. Yeah. So this is kind of a, a pastiche of a lot of little things that I have found. Okay. So we talked back when we did Black Edwardians a little bit about black entertainers. And we can get into that more probably a bit later if we want to go a little bit more in depth mm -hmm. as to how that was. So, I mean, basically a lot of musicians left America, jazz musicians of color would leave America and go to Europe because Europe had uh, the very enticing um, quality of not having the KKK. Yes. Uh, people in Europe were extremely racist. That right. is not an issue. Yeah. Uh, but, in the U.S., particularly because jazz came primarily out of the South before it migrated to cities like New York and San Francisco, mm -hmm. uh, the KKK would target these entertainers and, you know, frequently, like, kill them and stuff. Right. So Europe uh, looked very, very appealing. And, you know, there was a certain exoticism mm -hmm. assigned mm -hmm. to black artists from America in particular. Mm. Um, and we'll get into this in a bit more detail but one thing I noticed that was really interesting, uh, I found this excerpt that was uh, Anti-Black Racism in British Popular Music, 1880 to 1920. Hmm. So this would have covered, you know, most of the Edwardian period. Right. But, you know, it was this sort of minstrelsy and mm. that kind of stuff, blackface. And, I mean, I, I found some really interesting things about the fact that 
during the Victorian era in particular, when expressions of masculinity were really rigid uh, and emotion mm-hmm. was looked down upon and for men to have any real interest in romance was looked down upon, you have sort of the the blackface and otherization that, you know, characterizes black people as being simpletons and all of this horrible stuff. But there was also this weird flip side to it where black performers were allowed to sort of enact these things that were thought of as being inappropriate mm-hmm. for white mm-hmm. men. So it was this really odd situation where you have this, you know, very offensive depiction of black people, but then there is this flip side where it's like, oh, you know, we get to sort of project these things onto you. Mm -hmm. And they were played very sincerely, Mm -hmm. these particular performances. Mm -hmm. But in general, every song or performance was extremely racist. This continues up until about 1914 with the outbreak of World War One, whereupon the songs are still quite offensive, <laughs> but they have a bit more of a positive spin because, of course, in Britain, they needed their black citizens to join in their fight against the Kaiser. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I found this excerpt from a song. Uh, please pardon the language. Yeah. I'm just reading this verbatim so we can kind of get a context of what even a positive depiction okay. of a black person in popular culture is at this point. The chorus, so this is actually something that would be sung by both white and black people. Okay. I'm not a common darky. That's why I'm dressed in khaki. One of the boys that helped to bear the brunt. We've been very, very busy at the front. William thought he had us cornered, but we've made him change his tune. I'm an absent-minded beggar, but everybody's proud of John Bull's little khaki coon. So that's a backhanded bunch of Indeed compliments. Indeed it is, yeah. Uh, yeah, because uh, clearly... Uh, Still stupid. Right. Uh, still being referred to with slurs. Right. But, you know, by God, they're going to take down the Kaiser. Yeah. It's interesting. I know that there were, um, like, black, like, units in the French mm-hmm. army from Senegal. Yeah. And others of their colonies. Yeah. And, I mean, this is, I mean, this is black Britons. Right, right, So, right. but what's interesting is that prior to this, um, you know, the grammar of the songs would be very much sort of like that sort of stereotypical uh-huh. plantation yeah you know yeah. language and so in this case it's actually standard you know grammatically correct right, english right, yeah. versus you know just yeah. being racist as shit and, yeah. and making it very um i oh well, yeah I yeah mean, i don't I know even what know what mean. they called it at that time but there's no dialect right to it yeah yeah and uh, and the audience is asked to identify with this person uh, for the sing-along section. And this is not uncommon for other races as well at this point. Um, mm-hmm. There's a song from 1916 called Well Done Little Ones, Bravo Belgian Boys, and uh, Good Luck Little French Soldier Man, <laughs> Three Cheers for Little Belgium, and Bravo Little Belgium. So, uh, you know, they were like, hey, you're great, but also, you know, simmer down. <laughs> right. And I found this very interesting during the Paris Peace Conference uh, at which the League of Nations was formed. Mm-hmm. Japan actually suggested a uh, an equality amendment to the peace treaty. They were basically suffering inequality in the treaties and they wanted equal status with the Western countries that were involved. Mm-hmm. And so it was called the Racial Equality Clause in the Covenant of the League of Nations – 
And uh, it was an amendment to Article 21, and it was first presented in 1919 on the 13th of February, and it goes a little something like this. <laughs> the equality of nations being a basic principle of the League of Nations, the high contracting parties agree to accord as soon as possible to all alien nationals of states, members of the leagues, equal and just treatment in every respect, making no distinction, either in law or in fact on account of their race or nationality. So... The Wikipedia article that I pulled this from says, you know, they didn't mean equality in the sense that we mean it now. This was basically Japan asking for special treatment for Japan. Mm. However, it was shot down because if it were adopted, it could have had those modern ramifications. So Mm -hmm. I felt that that Wikipedia article was very poorly constructed. Yeah. I know we're all shocked. Yeah. Anyway, so yeah. So basically, the Japanese were pretty self-contained uh, in terms of having kind of racial hegemony, hegemony mm-hmm. on their island. Right, right. Um, so basically, they didn't really think about the fact that the Western-dominated international system of the day uh, was based almost entirely on colonial subjugation of non-white countries. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They were basically thinking that it was just them being like, hey, we want to play at the table with the big boys, but their enemies were like, oh, they're trying to get us to, you know, right. treat our colonial citizens as full citizens. Right, right. And uh, the always classy Australian prime minister, <laughs> uh, his name was Billy Hughes, he announced in a meeting that 95 out of 100 Australians rejected the very idea of equality. And then uh, one of the reps from Japan, Makino Nobuaki, announced that We are not too proud to fight, but we are too proud to accept a place of admitted inferiority in dealing with one or more of the associated nations. We want nothing but simple justice. Mm. So this amendment actually passed 11 to 17, but Woodrow Wilson overturned it because he's real classy. Yeah, and super racist. Uh, Yeah, well, he knew that he needed the pro-segregation Southern Democrat support if he had any hope Mm -hmm. uh, of getting this treaty ratified Mm -hmm. in the Senate. And the British Empire, basically, they needed Australia. Mm. And Australia was very adamantly opposed to this because there were a lot of mining concerns in Australia and their labor in a lot of cases, uh, there was a lot of competition between the natives mm. and uh, South Asian immigrants coming in to work these mines. Mm. And they actually had a policy called the White Australia Policy that limited immigration to Australia based on your ethnicity. Mm-hmm. And so they needed – Australia needed to keep that to keep their advantage and Britain needed to keep that Australian advantage in order to be reaping all the benefits of these mining concerns. Right, right. So Wilson unilaterally as the chairman uh, overturned the proposal saying that it required a unanimous vote in order to pass. I mean and just yeah. – he got to make that decision. Yeah. Both of the French delegation, uh, again, France having donated their entire land and economy to this fucking war in the first place. Yeah. Uh, so he was upset. The, the French delegate was Ferdinand Larnaud. And then the Japanese delegation made sure that the transcript showed that there had been this mm-hmm. majority mm-hmm. voting for it. And just, oh, God. It's just 
awful. Yeah. It's absolutely awful. And uh, the delegate re- representing the British Empire in his diary writes, It is curious how all the foreigners perpetually harp on principle and right and other abstractions. Yeah. Whereas the Americans and still more the British are only considering what will give the best chance to the League of working properly. Uh, presumably he scratched out the part where it said working properly for the Americans and the British. <laughs> right. Anyway, uh, it's pretty widely regarded by historians that it is this overturning of this amendment that led Japanese uh, politics to turn so sharply inward and become very nationalistic in their mm. policies yeah. versus being very open to working with the Western nations. Mm-hmm. And that obviously very clearly led to their alliance with Italy and Germany in World War II. Yeah. So had this well, gone and- through, you know, it's it's facile to say – that had this gone through, we could have prevented World War II, but it might have been a completely different landscape. Well, I mean, I think it, you know, at least helped push Japan to say, oh, so we have to have our own colonies. Exactly. So take over Korea and take over yep. much of China. So, yeah, it's really disheartening. Yeah. And uh, once again, let's all just take a moment to give a giant middle finger to Woodrow Wilson. Here, here. One of history's greatest monsters. It's really true. So I tried to look a little bit into what sort of the black population of Britain was at this point. Uh Once again, not super helpful. Mm -hmm. Um, I did come across a book, which I have not had a chance to read yet. It's very long. It's like 700 pages, but it's by a guy named Peter Fryer and it's called staying power, the history of black people in Britain. And it's supposed to be very comprehensive. It was originally published in 1984. Mm. Uh, Peter Fryer, hideous looking white man. (laughs) Uh, I'm also curious, Cousins, if you know of any histories of black Britain that were actually written by black historians, because I'm having a very hard time finding mm. them. Yeah. Um, so, you know, if you have any suggestions, please let us know, because both black Edwardians and this book were written by white guys. Mm-hmm. And it's just very disheartening. But unsurprisingly, prior to World War II, all of the largest black communities were in the the port cities. So London's East End, Liverpool, Bristol, and then Cardiff's Tiger Bay. Uh, there were also communities in South Shields in Tyne and Ware and also in Glasgow. The South Shields community also had a lot of people who were South Asian and Yemeni. And they were the victims of the first race riot in 1919, which I've seen in some of the research I've done someone trying to characterize it as simply a labor dispute and not a race riot. Hmm. It was definitely a labor dispute, but to characterize it as not being a race riot is looking at it through the most ridiculous rose colored glasses. Right. Well, and it and, makes and, me really angry. And I mean, racism has always had, uh, you know, an economic component mm-hmm. to it. Like that's always been part of it. But this was actually pretty uh, widespread uh, in the Anglo-Saxon world because what happened was during World War One, the native population were all conscripted to go and fight in the war. Mm-hmm. And so at that point, in order for commerce to continue, all of these immigrants were coming in mm-hmm. and they were working in the shipyards and making sure that all of that kept running smoothly. So when the war ended and all of the white guys came back, they wanted their jobs back and there was all of this tension about that. So to get in a little bit more detail about this first race riot, so it was in uh, South Shields, also called Tyneside, I guess. Sure. So basically in the 1860s, a lot of uh, Arabic and Somali seamen had settled there in the 1860s. 
And then there were West African and West Indian seamen who came there as well before the First World War. And then, as I said, you know, those people wound up taking a lot more of those jobs while the white seamen were off. White seamen. <laughs> yes. Uh, fighting in the war. Mm-hmm. So basically, a bunch of Arabic seamen had just paid their two-pound stamp to clear their union books. And they had to, you know, pay that. Uh, pay their dues so they could sail, but they were then refused work. Mm. And a man uh, named J.B. Fye, he was an official of the Stewards and Cooks Union, he incited a bunch of the white seamen uh, against the Arab seamen, and he was later convicted of using language to cause a breach of the peace, Mm. uh, which in America would just be called inciting a riot. So he hit one of the Arabs who hit him back, and then the crowd chased all of the Arabic immigrants uh, to Holborn, the district in South Shields where they lived. And then their friends arrived, backed them up, and they fired warning shots over the heads of the attackers. And then they chased them back to the shipping office, (laughs) which was then wrecked by their huge fight. Army and Navy patrols were called in, uh, and then 12 of the Arabic citizens were arrested. The wisdom of the day said that the judge was was reasonably lenient on them. Hmm. Three of them were acquitted. And then the others received between three months of prison and one month of hard labor. So, oh, okay. I mean, it was kind of a slap on the wrist, but it's notable that the people who actually incited the riot were not in any way punished. Mm-hmm. And so then in Liverpool, uh, the same kind of issue happened. Uh-huh. Uh, there were about 5,000 black workers living in Liverpool in the spring of 1919. So there were about 120 black workers who had been working in the sugar refineries and the oil cake mills. Uh, they were fired because white workers refused to work with them. Mm. And there was no you know, state benefit in those days, and they had to live on credit until they right. you know, presumably were refused credit or died. Right. Um, and so a lot of these families were at the end of their credit limit and being turned out into the streets. So the secretary of the Liverpool Ethiopian Association, his name was D.T. Tumava. He went to go see the Lord Mayor, and so he tried to explain that about 500 to 600 black men who were mostly discharged British British soldiers were out of work and stranded in the area. And so he suggested that they be repatriated and provided uh, a bursary of about five pounds because most of them had just been pawning everything they owned in Mm. order to buy food for themselves and their families. And a lot of these men were actually uh, guys who had lost limbs or eyes in the war. So they're also, Mm. you know, disabled. Mm -hmm. They're out of work and they're being discriminated against because of their race. So the mayor is coping with this as well as a complaint uh, from a group claiming to represent 5,000 jobless white ex-servicemen mm. who also uh, were whining about being competed with for these jobs. Right. And eventually this resulted in a race riot. The mayor kind of anticlimactically wrote to the colonial office, uh, only the other night there was a fight between the two races and matters are not likely to improve. Yeah. And that is true. We can't get into it in detail, but basically up through the 30s, mm-hmm. there were just race riots all over Britain. Mm-hmm. And then this resumed in the wake of World War II in the 1950s. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we can talk about that perhaps at a later time. <laughs> yeah. So now let's shift our focus to jazz. (laughs) Jazz. Jazz. So uh, jazz was really revolutionary. Um, In general, critics of jazz maintain that European classical music was the only good music. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this is what's always happened. A non-white media 
asserts itself and then everybody falls all over themselves talking about how evil and terrible it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, jazz was really helped out in a lot of ways by prohibition and it's alignment with prohibition, you know, helped it gain uh-huh. a lot of, tra- I mean, obviously look, if you can get alcohol <laughs> and you can provide the soundtrack to the getting of alcohol, yeah. you're going to be doing quite There's well. Some positive associations there. <laughs> but you know, this, this basically, uh, in America was really frowned upon, but jazz actually found a lot greater acceptance in Europe. And again, as I was saying, a lot right. of these black musicians went to Europe to avoid being lynched. <laughs> so Jack Ross himself is essentially based on this guy named Leslie Hutch Hutchinson, who was one of the biggest cabaret stars in the world during the 1920s and 1930s, mm. uh, referred to frequently as a gigolo, although it remains to be seen... If this character is a gigolo, oh, right. uh, gigolo actually, I learned, was not actually coined until 1922. Oh. And it comes from uh, the French word gigoule, which is basically a for hire female dance partner. Oh, okay. But gigolo, you know, it's, it's sort of commonly accepted now to mean male prostitute, but it is specifically men who are hired by women. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, Lady right. May Loxley's cadre of uh, <laughs> escorts would be gigolos. Yeah. So uh, Hutch was actually born in Grenada, and he took piano lessons as a child and then moved to New York City in his teens. Uh, he had very high aptitude and was uh, planning to get a degree in medicine, but uh, as often happens, he just began playing the piano and singing in bars. <laughs> so he joined a band led by Henry Broadway Jones, and he would often play for white millionaires such as the Vanderbilts, uh, attracting, again, the wrath of the KKK. Mm. So Hudge only stuck around in America until about 1924 for a residency in Paris at Joe Zelly's club, and he became a friend and lover of Cole Porter. Oh. This is really fascinating. So this guy had all of these affairs, which we don't even have time to get into, (laughs) but he was also bisexual. And is rumored to have had affairs with Cole Porter and also our old friend Ivor Novello, wow. who was extremely gay. <laughs> uh, not addressed in Gosford Park at all, but yeah. very, very much an unabashed homosexual. Mm. And he pretty publicly homosexual, actually. Mm. Mm-hmm. So it's it's very scandalous. Yeah. In 1927, he performed in uh, England for the first time in a Rodgers and Hart musical. And soon he was just a society darling and Uh just really took off. He was a favorite singer of the then Prince of Wales and he was regularly heard on the BBC. One of his greatest hits was a song called these foolish things. Uh, But he, despite his popularity could not escape racial prejudice, much like we see facing Jack Ross. Mm -hmm. He had a Rolls Royce. He had a really big expensive house he went to all the best tailors he spoke five or six languages wow and you know was on very good terms with the prince of wales Mm -hmm. but if he entertained at a lavish party uh he would frequently have to go in by the servant's entrance and he you know was very bitter about his Uh second class status he also was one of the first troops to volunteer to entertain at home and abroad during world war ii but he never received any formal recognition of his service, and his name would never appear on any honors list, yeah. which would really piss me off. <laughs> oh, my God. I can't even get into all of his sex exploits. But, um, <laughs> so he was married to a woman named Ella Bird uh, in 1923 or 1924, just before leaving New York. He fathered six children with five different mothers. <laughs> uh, so he really got around. Yeah. So he... Uh, 
He had an affair with the British debutante Elizabeth Corbett, who had gotten pregnant with his child. So her family tried to kind of cover things up and hastily married her off to an army officer uh, who was attempting to pass the child off of his own. But uh, the kid was born and was clearly biracial. Right. Uh, so the husband refused to acknowledge the child. Yeah. And uh, the infant was then put up for adoption and Corbett's outraged father sued Hutch. Uh, oh. Yeah. So then he also apparently had a very long affair to Edwina Mountbatten, (laughs) which is a horrible name. Yeah. Uh, She was an in-law of the royals, Mm -hmm. and the tabloids were reporting on it. And uh, the Mountbatten sued the tabloids, and then Hutch, as a result, was shunned by many of his former patrons. Mm -hmm. And so after that, he was no longer permitted back at Buckingham Palace. And yeah. Not good. Uh, he also apparently had an affair with Tolu the Bankhead, uh, also openly bisexual. Mm. And he then uh, fell into ill health later in his life, and he died in London of pneumonia on August 19th of 1969, and only 42 people attended his funeral. Wow. And by all accounts, was penniless wow. uh, at this point. Yeah, so uh, sorry, Jack Ross, the future for you does not look super bright. Yeah. Um, but it's just, it's really fascinating. I mean, these people who were these performers, I mean, you know, right. this is not just, you know, people of color, but I mean, they had this huge popularity. Mm-hmm. It was really a boom time for entertainers. Yeah. But yeah. then, you know, and this is again with a lot of performers, you know, the, you go through this period of being super popular. And then all of a sudden it dries up. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm, I'm very curious to see how this, uh, this plays out. Yeah. So that's a little bit of background. We'll hopefully find more information. Mm-hmm. If you're curious about learning more, I found a couple of websites. One is called The Black Presence in Britain. And there's also 100greatblackbritons.com. Uh, and if we find more information, we'll definitely kind of keep you guys up to date okay. uh, on some other sources. But I'm excited about the Staying Power book. It might actually give me more context. Yeah. Because I tried to look up sort of what uh, the black population of Yorkshire looked like at the time. Mm-hmm. But there was nothing substantial. Yeah. Um, you know, it wasn't a port city, so I doubt that it was right. significant. Right. But I'm, uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to the rest of this plot line with Jack Ross. Yeah. I, I really... I'm happy with the way that it's played out, and I really like uh, Gary Carr's performance quite a bit. Absolutely. I agree. So, yeah, that's Fashion Backwards. Okay. Well, thank you. Uh, In the nursery, Branson and Mary are there fiddling around with some baby things, and Isabel comes in. She says that she came early for dinner in order to spend some time with George. Uh, Mary says, great. In that case, Isabel can go ahead and feed him for her. She says that George will like that. Isabel says she doesn't think so. She thinks he'll probably just be thinking, who's this funny old lady? Well, that is, to be fair, what everybody else thinks. (laughs) She also says that she suggests that she be grandmama and then Cora will be granny. Uh, Mary says, fine. And she asks what Sibby should call Isabel. And she says, well, Aunt Isabel, I suppose. I'm not really her aunt, but I'm nearly her aunt. Mm -hmm. And uh, she says she read about Gilly's engagement and asks tells Mary that she hopes that she is not unhappy. And Mary says that she isn't unhappy. She's just not quite ready to be happy. Sorry. I'm just, I was thinking logistically. Isabel technically is Sibby's great aunt by marriage. Right. Because Matthew would have been her uncle. Right. And Isabel's his mother. Yeah. So yeah. I think so. I think so too. We'll go with that. Yep. (laughs) Moving on. 
Isabel says that when she got engaged, she was so in love with Reginald that she felt sick. She was literally sick with love. She says it just seems quite odd to think about now. And Tom says that it was the same for him when he was in love with Sybil. It was as if he had gone mad. All he could think about was Sybil. And Mary says that, and Mary says that uh, when she was standing outside in the snow and she didn't have a coat, but she wasn't cold because she was just thinking, he's going to propose, he's going to propose. And they all sit there for a second, and Isabel says, well, aren't we the lucky ones? Oh my god, you guys. Yeah. This scene. Oh my god, this is this show like at its best. Yeah. This scene, just this, yeah, just all three of them. We're just getting all weepy in here. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a little dusty. Um, <laughs> no, man. I, this. Well, because we haven't really spent that much time. Like, we spent some time on their grief, Mary right. and Branson, but, like, not how, like, much in love they were and stuff. Yeah. We should probably stop talking about this because I'm just got all this dust in my eyes. <laughs> yeah. It's, like, super great. It's super great. And it was just so, because it was just a little scene, and then just, like, it it turned and was this just beautiful, powerful thing. Yeah, it was awesome. Yeah. But, hey, good news. <gasps> the babies come in. Babies! With their non-prejudiced nanny. Yeah. Sibby looks a little bit peg-like here. <laughs> uh, she looks a little confused. Yeah. George is very inquisitive looking yeah. in a natty little sailor suit. He looks <laughs> yes. quite dashing. Yes. He is being carried and looking around like, what's up? Yeah. It is awesome. It is. More babies. <laughs> Down in the servants hall, uh, the musicians sit around just generally doing musician type things. <laughs> right. While Carson just stares at Jack Ross <laughs> and very tactfully asks if he's ever thought of visiting Africa. Okay, you guys. We love Jack Ross. We do. He is awesome. He is. He says, uh, Jack asks why he should. He's no more African than Carson. Then he throws over to Mrs. Hughes and says, well, not much more. <laughs> uh, he says that his people came over in the 1790s. We won't go into why or how. <laughs> and Carson agrees it's better left unsaid. And I just love how slick Jack Ross is here. Yeah. Because, I mean, you have to think, oh, you've got to just, you've got to be able to navigate. Yeah these people's ignorance right and you know mrs hughes is just being delightful as yeah. usual yeah but i mean he's just very like hey uh i understand history and now i'm here and i'm just as good as you and yeah. it's fucking awesome it is so mrs hughes says that uh jack ross has uncovered something about the past that carson doesn't approve of so well done <laughs> Uh, meaning slavery. Right. So Carson says, uh, as if Jack Ross doesn't know this, <laughs> uh, that England led the world in the fight against slavery, and he quotes Lord Henley from 1763, if a man sets foot on English soil, then he is free. Just to me, Jack says his people came over in the 1790s. I guess he means to America. Right. That I was, just, yeah, yeah. I was, you know, I had British people on the brain. Sure, so, yeah. Uh, anyway, the trumpet flare, uh, <laughs> strikes up a jazzy melody yeah, in the corner to, to be fair he put in a straight mute for it. yeah like, come on but we, when this scene came on and he did that we just looked at each other and both went jazz in the corner jimmy kent's trying to apologize to ivy for the finger bang that wasn't and rose comes in and she says she's the first one down and wanted to check that everything was on track wearing a lovely mulberry colored outfit indeed everyone is stood of course and you know they're all being weird because she's there. <laughs> right. 
Uh, Mrs. Hughes says she's fed the musicians because they'll be playing during the servants' dinner. And Rose says they really ought to be dining with the family. Carson rolls his eyes at this. <laughs> yeah. But that would give the game away. <laughs> and a bit much else. <laughs> right. uh, Rose tells Jack to make sure everyone's in their seats before setting up and then heads off. Jack Ross says that Lady Rose is quite the character. And Mrs. Hughes says that's one word for her. <laughs> Brazen hussy would be... Two words. <laughs> uh, Jack Ross then waves at some giggling mates. <laughs> yeah. Uh, upstairs, Rose whispers some instructions to Thomas as everybody is heading in to dinner. Uh, and then at the table, Mary says that she feels sorry for the poor pigs uh, because what they're doing is intensive pig farming, apparently, as opposed to, like, lackadaisical pig farming. Yeah, hippie pig farming. Right. Uh, Blake asks her if she eats bacon and sausage and so on, which she does. He says that that makes her a sentimentalist who can't face reality or something like that. Mary says she isn't often called sentimental. McGee, seeing all this, tells Napier that Blake is putting Mary through her paces. And Napier says that he's uh, challenged by entitled people. Uh, Also, Napier's face is quite dismayed because he, like us... (laughs) is picking up on the smoldering sexual tension (laughs) between these opposites. And you've got to, at some point, Napier's got to be like, I've really got to stop bringing friends when I come to Downton. Next I know, we'll turn up dead. (laughs) Well, that's good for him. Well, that's true. You know, precedent. This time I won't leave for 10 years. (laughs) I'm going to stick around in the wake of the funeral. (laughs) Napier also says that Mary is welcome to take charge of him any time, and McGee laughs. Because she's like, Mary would never want to take charge of someone who's so willing to be taken charge of. (laughs) That's true. It's not her style. Yeah. The Dowager Countess asks Mosley if he's glad to be back at Downton. He says he's more like surprised, but uh, he supposes he'll have to call him Joseph now. And the Dowager Countess does not think she can manage that, uh, nor can Lord Grantham, who tells a very disapproving Carson <laughs> that they will be calling Mosley Mosley. Right. Which is good news for us. As it well. is. Absolutely. I mean, it is a bit odd that the Dowager and Lord Grantham would be like flouting tradition in this way but, but you know what they also don't like to be inconvenienced that's they true. also have to call branson uh not branson right and call him tom yeah so look they they've had a hard year <laughs> that's true nomenclature wise <laughs> uh, isabel asks branson why he wants to emigrate and he says that it's because he's never going to fit in a downton isabel says that they're fond of him here uh, he says that they are and that he is fond of them. Even he loves them, as shocked as he is to be saying it. But he knows that he can't make a life there. Isabel asks, why not? Uh, she says, like, you know, have you tried meddling? That gets me through the day. <laughs> uh, but he says, Branson says he doesn't think there's another Earl's daughter keen to take him on. Uh, you know, Edith might need somebody to step up and do the right thing here. <laughs> that's, that's very true. Isabel says it would depend on the Earl's daughter, but Branson says there aren't many as free as my Sybil. Yeah. Causing us to get all weepy again. It's true. We miss you, Sybil. We do. Isabel agrees, and Branson says, then, so should I bring a nice Irish working girl to live here? Would that make everyone comfy? (laughs) (laughs) No. It wouldn't. Lord Grantham tells the Dowager Countess that Isabel appears to be coming out of the mist, Mm -hmm. like a latter-day gorilla. (laughs) Um, 
The Dowager Countess says that part of her recovery is going back to battle. And Lord Grantham says that if she's fighting, then that's a good sign. Uh, the Dowager Countess says it's a sign they should close the shutters and bar the door uh, against the oncoming onslaught of revolt. <laughs> Lord Grantham says that What's she... What's that? It looks like woad. <laughs> Lord Grantham says that she likes to fight for what she believes in, and the Dowager Countess says it's not what she likes, it's her fuel, and she runs on indignation. Which is a great characterization of Isabel, frankly. Yes, it is. McGee announces that she is catching the lady's eye, which I just sort of liked that announcing that. I am just in love with McGee no, I right know. now, it's y'all. Crazy. Uh, but as they all stand, Rose interrupts and says, no, tonight we're all going out together. And everybody's like, Whoa. One person's head explodes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, she runs out, tells Jack Ross to strike up the band. And Rose comes back in as the music starts up and says, happy birthday, Cousin Roberts. Or Cousin, <laughs> cousin Robert. Cousin Robert. Uh, but she's so like, ah, yeah, she's ah, so excited and so great. Yeah. And uh, Lord Grantham is very pleased. I feel like it's been a while since we liked people on this show. <laughs> yeah. Like Mrs. Hughes and Anna notwithstanding. Yeah. Like it's just, it's nice. It is nice. Out in the main hall, Jack Ross is singing about how wild he is about Harry, which is a bit... Uh, all right. Uh, yeah. Two things. <laughs> Uncle Harold in Dire Straits. <laughs> Not that the below stairs people would know about True. that. Uh, but also, considering the kerfuffle yeah. that arose in this house uh, recently about a man being wild about another man. Yeah. Uh, but he could have no way of knowing. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's just odd to me that that this was a – I mean, I assume this was a thing that, you know. Well, if you look at the old Looney Tunes cartoons, this was a wildly popular song for men to sing about other men. Yeah. Or just for men to sing. And right. I don't – Yeah. I guess, you know, for Fashion Backwards, I ought to have just looked up that song and spared everybody my treatise on history, but <laughs> no. ah, it's too late. Um, anyway, so he's singing that, and Rose is excitedly dragging in Lord Grantham, uh, who seems a bit chagrined by all yeah. the attention. And we were watching this very, like, tensely to see. Well, I what mean, the we saw the, be. look, the reaction of everyone downstairs was demonstrably racist. Yes. I mean, even Mrs. Hughes, like, right. you know, Mrs. She, Hughes is very polite, but yeah. she was like, oh. Right. Okay. Yeah. I mean, she comes in and smiles, but then she looks over at Lord Grantham to yeah. be like, what is this motherfucker gonna do? <laughs> Rose has already grabbed someone and started dancing. Yeah, she is like, I've been waiting to dance for fucking weeks. Yeah. Let's go. And then uh, Edith, Edith, of all people, yeah. winds up being the most racist mm-hmm. and says, who is this singer and how did he get here? Isn't it rather odd? <laughs> but Lord Grantham, having had a few moments to take this all in, says, no, I think it's fun. And he grabs McGee and they start to dance, yeah. which is, yeah. who are you and what have you done with LG? <laughs> Edith asks the Dowager Countess, expecting sympathy, if it's really suitable for this, you know, person of color to be singing at Downton. Mm-hmm. And the Dowager Countess says, we country del- dwellers must beware of being provincial. Try and let your time in London rub off on you a little more. Which is a great <laughs> line by itself. And see, <laughs> right. even better, because I kind of want Edith to shoot back and like, oh, it's growing inside of me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've got a little souvenir <laughs> in my uterus. <laughs> Mary stands next to Blake as they're watching the dancing, and Mary says she wants to know what estates he'll be examining, and Blake says, I'm sure you do. Mary says, you mustn't be too discreet. After a while, it gets a little dull, uh, which I just enjoyed it. Uh, yes. Blake walks off. 
Mary tells Napier that he's brought a traitor into their midst. Also, my vagina's on fire. <laughs> it is ridiculous how much sexual intention they have injected into this right off the bat. It's very true. Uh, Napier says that he's not a traitor, and she says that, well, he's obviously not on their side. I'm just curious what evil in Napier's getting out of all this. Uh, he thinks he's getting Mary out of it, but... I mean this government study. Oh, I mean, I think he's, you know, it's a job. Yeah, anyway. I think that's all it is. Branson is dancing with Isabel, marveling about jazz at Downton, and Isabel says she thinks it's lovely and proof that unexpected things can happen at Downton. Uh, Branson appears to have shed his previous extreme racism uh from yeah. the lotus club yeah although i guess he's well, there in a more respectable capacity yeah than mingling with well, yeah a, you know a young aristocratic woman in public right uh but yeah. you know whatever yeah i suppose I mean, we're really, all past that and i mean really i think that rosamond was the the fount of racism in that well but scenario. i mean as we pointed out i mean mary and oh Ransom yeah like, were both very absolutely like chagrined you, by yeah, all this don't get me wrong uh, Napier sits by the Dowager and asks if it's her first experience with jazz. And she says, oh, is that what it is? Do you think any of them know what the others are playing? <laughs> Full yeah. disclosure, we don't like jazz. <laughs> As a rule. That's true. I have experienced some jazz that I do like. Yeah. But in general... It's not our yeah. cup of tea. Carson comes downstairs. Uh, Mrs. Hughes had asked him to come down and says they've made sandwiches for him and the others working the party since they'll probably be up there till midnight. And Anna and Bates trade a smile. Mrs. Patmore asks if Carson likes the music. He says, if you like that sort of thing. Uh, Mrs. Hughes thought that Mr. Ross was very nice. Carson did too, strange to relate, <laughs> though it's still odd. And Mrs. Patmore says this music makes her want to jig about. <laughs> and she is. She's yes. she's jigging it up. She is. She's getting jiggy with it. <laughs> uh, Carson disagrees about the jig-inducing vibes of jazz <laughs> and heads back upstairs. <laughs> <gasps> uh, the Dowager is dancing to a bit of a slower number with some random. It's Evelyn Napier. It is Evelyn yeah. Napier? Okay, I didn't think it was him. It is him. All right. Uh, but she says she thinks they've done enough to show that they're good sports. The Dowager Countess is just awesome. Yeah. Uh, Mary is dancing with Lord Grantham, and she says she thinks it was a brilliant idea, but it must have cost Rose a fortune, so should they maybe chip in? Doesn't Rose have a fortune? Well, yeah, but still. Lord you Grant know, she's living there for free. <laughs> she might as well contribute. Lord Grantham disagrees, Kelly. He says they should just pay for the whole thing. I guess she does need all that for her dowry or whatever. Right. Um, so Mary will go down at the end of the night to tell uh, Jack to send She says before bill. he leaves, but I was under the impression that they were staying overnight. As was I. But I mean, well, well they, she may have meant before he leaves the next morning or yeah, something. Or I mean, and Mary would have no idea what the plans are. That's a good it point. it was all a surprise. Yeah. Blake stands next to Napier and uh, tells him that he doesn't share his enthusiasm for Mary. He says she demands all this as a right, but won't work for it or fight for it. And that type doesn't deserve to survive. Well. Napier says he doesn't want to make trouble, which of course you don't. <laughs> but Mary feels much the same way about Blake. Right. Which I feel like Baron Fellows thinks that that was a real sweet burn, but it doesn't really add up. Like, Blake just has a job. He doesn't have all this. Like, I, I don't know. I didn't... Yeah, it doesn't quite map. I understand the spirit of of the thing, but yeah. it's not quite the same. Yeah. Uh, they then take the bronze and synchronize champagne sipping. <laughs> it's ridiculous. It is ridiculous. Like, they literally sip their champagne in unison. Yeah, it's weird. Uh, Edith is off brooding in a corner. 
um, actually literally brooding when you think about it. And McGee, <laughs> yeah. uh, comes over and says that she wishes Edith would tell her what's wrong. Edith asks how she knows something's wrong, and McGee's like, "Because uh, I'm your mother." Duh. Uh, Edith says that Gregson went to Munich a few weeks ago, and that's all they know. Uh, McGee says, "Well, then of course you're worried." But Edith just runs off. McGee, you really could have brought this up at a different time. Yeah. Well. The crowd then applauds right. for Jack Ross. As well they should. As well they should. He does sound better in this he episode. He does. Agreed. Uh, he still that. doesn't quite sound, period. We actually have recordings of him on YouTube. We'll post a couple of them for you to check out. Mm-hmm. But he's got a very different sound than what this sounds like. Right. So yeah. we give up. Yeah. <laughs> it was the... Forget it, Jake. It's the jazz age. <laughs> Lord Grantham comes into McGee's bedroom and says it's not often that a birthday surprise really is a surprise. McGee says that she hopes they didn't shock the servants. <laughs> and Lord Grantham says uh, Carson told him that Jack Ross was a very decent fellow, my lord. McGee says that Gregson is still missing. Lord Grantham says he knows, but is sure he'll be fine because, again, things always work out. <laughs> He asks her if she's read the letter from Harold, and she says that she has read it and also received one from Mac L. And McGee thinks that uh, Harold's in a deep hole. She asks if they've ever met this Senator Fall. Lord Grantham doesn't think so. And McGee supposes Harold may be innocent, but Lord Grantham says it's definitely proved that he shouldn't have gotten involved in whatever this is. Right. McGee says not to get riled about it, and again, showing her age, tells him to come to bed and dream of ragtime, <laughs> yeah. which was... Uh, in the previous decade, not this current one. Indeed. So. Uh, it's now time for the second of our recurring segments with our resident presidential pundit. Hey, it's Tom Repeats History. Hooray. You may or may not be aware from the hints dropped in this episode, but Uncle Harold is involved in the Teapot Dome scandal. Um, and so I went to look this up, but I wound up just looking up Warren G. Harding, his life, the president at the time. Which you you think that sounds boring, don't you? You're so wrong. <laughs> this dude was so interesting, but I'm just going to talk about him today. And then since presumably the Teapot Dome scandal will still be going on, maybe I'll talk about it. In yeah, a well, and presumably episode. we'll get more about Harold's actual involvement. Right, right. So Warren Gamaliel Harding. Oh, my God. Yes. Called Winnie in his youth. Uh, born in 1884, he he wound up living in Marion, Ohio. He was born in some other north-central Ohio village or whatever. But Marion, if you're one, is about uh, like 50 miles north of Columbus. He had came to early prominence in Marion when his Citizens Cornet Band won the $200 third prize at the highly competitive Ohio State Band Festival. Uh, so he's rather a jazz fellow himself. Uh, I guess so, although this was pre-jazz. Yeah. Uh, and it's a good thing they won, as he had bought their snazzy uniforms on credit and then used the prize money after they won to pay off the uniforms. <laughs> he... Uh, sort of got a start in his adult life by purchasing the Marion Daily Star, which was the struggling third place newspaper in Marion, Ohio, which just gives you an idea of how crazy the newspaper business was back in the 19th century. Yeah. Like, I can only, like, I know people from Marion and the fact that they had three newspapers in the early part of this century is even more ludicrous than the idea that they might have one today. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, but so he took it over and he uh, revamped it to make it a uh, Republican, like, supporting newspaper, uh, which angered all the local political bosses. At this point, he was accused – his whole life, the rumor dogged him of having 
some black person somewhere in his ancestry. Uh, sometimes it was like his great-great-grandfather or something like that, which, of course, under the one-drop rule that basically existed at the time, any black ancestor anywhere made you black, which I'd just like to point out for the record, in Nazi Germany, you had to be at least an eighth Jewish to count as a Jew. Like, this was far less than that that he was accused of. But the fact that he was accused of it him and his dad took shotguns to the people that accused him of having a black ancestor and forced them to retract their accusation. Wow. Yeah. There is some belief that he may have kind of sort of that the rumors got started because he said kind of in jest that he didn't want to be too discriminatory towards black people because, quote, one of my ancestors may have jumped the fence for all he knew. Mm-hmm. So, Is um, there any like proof that he did have a black ancestor there isn't and it's generally not believed that he did Um, so it was the birther scandal of the time it was in fact he uh yeah so he he got this newspaper and and got it moving pretty well he's uh, did some speaking at the time on the chautauqua circuit and things like that Uh, he's believed to have coined the term founding fathers oh yeah good for that guy i guess i guess so yeah yeah he had you know major political opponents the whole time because it was a democratic town. Uh, one of his uh, opponents at one point bought up $20,000 in loans that he owed to various people and called them all in at once. Uh, and he was barely able to scrape it together and, and keep the newspaper afloat. Uh, in 1891, he married. Uh, he married Florence Kling de Wolf, who was interestingly the daughter of one of his political nemeses, Amos Kling. She hated her father. So. <laughs> that helped uh, she was she was known as flossy and she was fantastic uh she had been previously married she had had kind of a shotgun wedding to somebody that she had met while she was at the cincinnati conservatory of music <gasps> mm-hmm. uh and it was just like some drunkard as it turned out and, uh, <laughs> that's cincinnati for you yeah so they wound up getting divorced in 1886 but that was a sort of the start of her you know hatred of her father by all accounts, she was the real power at the Marion Daily Star. She reformed the circulation department and made it profitable and kept it running. And um, really all throughout her career, she was very much the power behind uh, Harding's career, whether in business or in politics. In 1905, she had a bout of nephritis, which is like a kidney inflammation or Yikes. whatever. And while she was in – well, first of all, she was treated by a homeopath. Uh, named Charles Sawyer and had a close relationship with him for her whole life, which led to various controversies at times. But while she was convalescing from her treatment, Warren began an affair with her friend, Carrie Fulton Phillips. Uh, this is apparently not the first time he had begun an affair with one of Florence's friends. What a dick. Yeah. I mean, like, go ahead and have your affair. Yeah. But, you know, find your own affairs. He did not. Mr. Phillips, Carrie was married. Oh, yikes. So Mr. Phillips took the family off to Germany to break up her and Warren. And she wound up loving Germany and just was sort of obsessed with German culture for the rest of her life. Ohio. Yeah. (laughs) Like, she wouldn't leave. She finally came back just before World War I started. Yeah. It seemed like the thing to do. But she was (laughs) very much a German supporter in World War I. And, like, the government kind of kept an eye on her because she was, like, meeting with German agents or whatever. She was a real, uh, a real Sylvia about it, huh? <laughs> yeah, she was. In 
1912, Warren, who had been getting his political career going with various, he ran for a bunch of local offices, which he knew he would lose because it was such a democratic part Mm -hmm. of the state, but it just got his profile up. And by 1912, he gave the official nominating speech at the Republican National Convention for Taft. So once again, the Barack Obama of his day. Yeah. Uh, the speech was widely considered a success, despite the fact that during the speech, a fistfight broke out on the floor between Taft and Teddy Roosevelt supporters. That's amazing. Yes. That's the best political speech ever. <laughs> right. More fistfights, <laughs> I say. Wouldn't the State of the Union be so much better if there were more <laughs> fistfights instead of just passive-aggressive glaring contests? Yeah, and fake Soviet-style applause. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so in 1914, he ran for Senate and actually went up against in the Republican primary, in the Republican primary, he was up against his political, like, mentor, Fire Engine Joe Foraker, who had uh, been the governor of Ohio at one point. Uh, but he won. So he, he was a senator at that point. Uh, and when 1920 came along, the Republicans just did not have a clear candidate in mind. Um, nobody could really agree on anything. Dudes, be totally spaced on the nomination. <laughs> well, they'd been split up by that, like the the Taft Roosevelt split mm-hmm. had kept the party split for a while, and it's helped. It's how um, Wilson, Woodrow Wilson, had gotten elected because the Republicans were split. Um, they were trying to get back together, but nobody could really agree on anyone. Harding had only like kind of half-heartedly joined the race. Uh, and on the first ballot, he only came in fourth place. Uh, but after nine ballots at the convention, there was still no consensus. So basically, all the party bosses got together in room 404 of the Blackstone Hotel in Chicago, where this was going on. Uh, this was the proverbial smoke-filled room where all the uh, you know unelected party bosses that were the real power just got together. And they finally agreed that none of them hated Harding. <laughs> so... They settled on him. So he was a real surprise nominee. Florence reportedly was so excited that she accidentally jabbed their campaign manager with her hat pins when his nomination was announced. So How do you accidentally jab someone with a hat pin? Hard to say. Like in the eye? I think just like in the arm or whatever. But look, I don't know. Okay, I can't even get into this right now. Right. Uh, before officially announcing it, they called him up to the smoke-filled room and said, listen, before God, is there anything we should know before nominating you? And he said no. Then they nominated him. Then he went back to them and said, so you should know that there's this Carrie Fulton Phillips who has hundreds of love letters from me, many of them written on Senate stationery. (laughs) (laughs) What a maroon! Yeah. So they were like, okay, so they, you know, whichever, you know, goons went up to, went off to Carrie Phillips. Hyatt goons. Yeah. And they were like, hey, we think uh, you should maybe take, do, do some foreign traveling for a while during this election. And she was like, no, you know what I think I should do? I think I should go for an extensive tour of Asia on your dime during this election and then have a stipend for life. And they were like, okay. Hey, yeah. good for you. Yeah. I wish I had that kind of situation. That would be fabulous. Yeah. So she's... she's <laughs> Note to self, start having affairs with more politicians. Yeah. So she has the distinction of being the only person known to have, like, straight up blackmailed a major political party. <laughs> well done. Land of the free, home of the grifter. <laughs> that is exactly right. 
Uh, so he ran his campaign, he ran a front porch campaign where he basically just hung out at his house and people came by and like there were all like a lot of photo ops and things like that. That sounds great. It, yeah. And it worked out really great for him. It was one of the like first really heavily covered in the media campaigns. Mm-hmm. And his wife was kind of running the show, and their their mutual experience with the newspaper industry was just a huge advantage. Oh, sure. Well, they had other contacts. Yeah, they had the contacts and knew, and knew how to handle them, knew mm-hmm. how to make them happy. And she also managed to imply that she was a widowed rather than divorced when she married Harding. So he won basically in a landslide. He won 60% of the popular vote. Wow. Uh, this, by the way, was the election in which Eugene Debs, in prison, won 3% of the national Aww. vote. Let's just pour one out for our buddy Eugene V. Debs. Here, here. Aw. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, so when Harding got in office, he was super popular, uh, partly just because he was, like, uh, conscious, because for the last two years, Woodrow Wilson had had a stroke and not really been seen in public while being president. So everybody was like, hey, look at this like person who's walking around and speaking with people. <laughs> this is an improvement. His wife was also very popular as White House hostess. At this point, she began being referred to as the Duchess. <gasps> That's right. All of our dreams are coming true. <laughs> exactly. She spoke her mind on all political subjects she was very you know again very much running things as a hostess she was popular uh she showed after dinner movies and uh, discreetly served booze this was during prohibition but uh that was not a problem at the White look House. i mean granted they're not you know royalty but it's always struck me as so funny as you know whether it's religious or law of the land mm-hmm. once you get into power you're just like fuck it yeah we're doing whatever we feel like let's have a drink she uh launched uh fashions at times including the silk neck band was a fashion that she launched fancy uh in terms of his politics he was fairly mixed really like if you look at labor for example he released eugene debs and other socialists and uh did some good things he helped push industries to cut from a 12-hour workday to an eight-hour workday however he did uh literally send in like air force bombers to break up a cold strike and things like that. So he was he was kind of back and forth on labor. That seems unnecessarily dangerous. Like, it's cold. <laughs> right. It's going to burn forever. Yeah. Um, and he was really, I mean, a lot, he was always like a compromiser going back to being in the Senate, which, you know, some people said compromiser, other people said didn't really have any convictions. But the one thing he really did have going for him at the time was his progressive you know, radically progressive for the times positions on race. Uh, he really just was not racist. I mean, he, you know, he went out of his way to make sure to say that he didn't support miscegenation because you pretty much had to say at least that much. But this was, I mean, this was the height of the Ku Klux Klan was during his administration. Like this was about the most racist, you know, time. Well, this is right around birth of a nation, right? Right. Which Woodrow Wilson had loved. What an asshole. Yeah. God, I hate Woodrow Wilson. Um, but yeah, he... Cousins, it cannot be overstated how much I hate Woodrow Wilson. Yeah. It's a lot. Yeah. But he, he supported an anti-lynching bill that didn't wind up passing. Uh, he appointed Jews and Catholics to various positions, which was also a bit... It also can't be overstated how much uh, people who were Jewish and Catholic at this time were discriminated against. Right. Everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, in the English-speaking world. Yes. For, for Catholics. And, yeah, 
scandals all over scandals which were <laughs> which again i'm not getting into them right now but um it was basically just all his political buddies that he'd assigned he'd given various cabinet jobs were just all corrupt and this he, is where i think probably his newspaper experience did not serve him well because yeah. in the media you can be more shady yeah you know and you yeah. can kind of like you know grease the wheels in ways that in politics i mean obviously that's still happening but you've got it it's a different kind of savvy right right um but yeah, and he, he was famously quoted as saying, I've got no problems with my enemies. It's my friends that keep me up at night. <laughs> this guy sounds like a goddamn delight. He seems to kind of have been. Um, but so in June... Can we that- go as Warren G. Harding and the Duchess for Halloween? <laughs> that would be difficult to sell. But yeah, I say yes. You just have to find the right group of people. <laughs> Uh, in June of 1923, he took a trip out to the West Coast, including to Alaska. He spent wow. a while there. Yeah. And then came down to Vancouver. Uh, he was sick, however, like the whole time. And doctors were trying to get him to cut back, but he really didn't want to. Uh, he gave his final speech in Seattle um, and was seen to be kind of rushing through it and, you know, had issues. They were treating him for, uh, you know, heart problems. They were giving him digitalis and things like that. He then went to San Francisco. He was staying in the Palace Hotel. He got pneumonia there. Uh, he seemed to be better, and the doctors went off to get dinner. Uh, but then at 7.30 that night, he just collapsed and died suddenly. Oh, my God. Uh, Dr. Sawyer, the homeopath who was there, he said he thought it was a stroke. And the other doctors disagreed. They, their official statement that they put out was that he had died of, quote, some brain evolvement, probably an apoplexy. So that's where medical science Aren't- was. Most of those words made up. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, Florence refused an autopsy, which helped fuel speculation that she had poisoned him. This speculation was really largely sent, uh, caused by a book published by Agaston Means, who is a whole character unto himself. I was say, that name actually sounds extremely familiar. He was... I mean, he was a real professional, lifelong grifter, Mm -hmm. Uh, but he had been hired by Florence at one point to investigate Harding and his mistress. I assume Carrie Phillips, but he had multiple mistresses Mm -hmm. and it didn't specify. He later died in prison after a con he tried to run involving the Lindbergh baby. Oh, shit. He claimed to know who the kidnappers were and asked for $100,000 to go try and get the baby back and then like skedaddled. But he should have skedaddled perhaps farther than he did. He, yeah, sadly he did not. And he, he, yeah. So he, his allegations of poisoning can be discounted. <laughs> yeah. Historians all agree he, that it was a, a, he died of natural causes. Uh, Florence then went back to DC, uh, stayed in the White House with the Coolidges who succeeded as president for a while, uh, spending her time collecting all of Harding's papers, official and unofficial, and burning them. Stand-up wife. <laughs> yeah, that's that's pretty solid. No, it's interesting that she was having this guy investigate his affairs, but also seems to have been so incredibly loyal. Right. It's mm-hmm. it's unusual. Agreed. I mean, particularly in a political marriage. Yeah. So they they're no. I mean, very interesting. It's like it's kind of like you know if Bill Clinton died and Hillary burned all of his papers. <laughs> yeah. Which may still happen. We it's, don't know. Yeah, it's possible. Uh, Carrie Phillips, at this point, uh, went back to Germany with Harding dead. James Phillips, however, stayed back home in Marion. Uh, he became a heavy drinker, and after he lost all his money in 1929, 
became a very heavy drinker, was seen panhandling around town. Oh, my God. Wound up dying in 1939 alone in some hotel. Jesus. Yeah. Uh, Carrie came back to America in 39, continued being super pro-German, and met with, like, Lindbergh and other fascists and things like that. So was, again, tracked by the government. After the war, she became eccentric. Her, her house was overrun with German shepherds, and uh, she would... <laughs> She would often walk them wearing a large mink coat with very little on underneath. <laughs> uh, she was eventually put in guardianship and she, she died in 1960. So, yeah. The weird, wild, wonderful <laughs> world of Warren G. Harding. There it is. Thank you, Tom. You're welcome. That was enlightening. Yeah. And I look forward to hearing more about this teapot dome scandal that we've heard so little about. Indeed. But... Right. Let's cap this episode off. Indeed. So Mary's going down the servant stairs, but comes to a halt when she spots Jack Ross and Rose making out and laughing. Yeah. Uh, okay. Look, Jack Ross, Rose. Yeah. I fully support this. Right. However, yeah. did it not occur to either one of you to try and have this assignation, like, not in the open? Right. Because they're in the servant signing hall, but, like, clearly visible from the stairs. And it's like, you know... Even if you're not expecting anybody from the family to come down, yeah. the servants might want a warm glass of milk. Right. The hall boy might have an assignation of his own to attend to. <laughs> you don't know. No. Anyway, really. no points to Jack and Rose. I'm sorry. I just realized wow. Jack and Rose. I also just realized boy, that. Julian Fellows needs <laughs> somebody to just smack him <laughs> real hard. <laughs> uh, at any rate, she, uh, Mary, stands there for a few moments uh, considering... The options available to her. <laughs> yeah. And uh, she she turns away and calls out, is anyone still awake? Which I think is the right move. Right. Rose comes out and asks Mary what she's doing down there. Uh, Mary says she's looking for Mr. Ross with a significant glare at Rose yeah. that clearly says, uh, no, what are you doing down here? <laughs> right. As if to answer the question, <laughs> Jack Ross comes out of uh, the dining hall and Mary... Uh, Drops her glare and right. is very polite, and she says that she wanted to thank him for a marvelous evening, and that his lordship asks that he send the bill to him. Rose protests, since it was her gift, and Mary says that Lord Grantham wants to. Rose's present was setting it all up. Yeah. Jack Ross says, of course, he'll send the bill to this fabulously wealthy white man <laughs> and thanks her. Uh, he says he's been very well look at, looked after and looks at Rose. Again, like, dude. You guys really need to take some lessons from Mary. Like, she killed a man with her vagina. Yeah. Okay? And played it off. Mm-hmm. More or less. Well, I mean, yeah. she had some difficulty. Well, she would have played it off if it wasn't for Edith. Exactly. Anyway, Mary says she's glad to hear it. She says goodnight, gives Rose another look. Yeah. Then walks upstairs looking uh, a little bewildered. Like, because yeah, what do you just, yeah. even at this point? Yeah. Then Rose and Jack Ross look at each other significantly, and we cut to credits. Yeah. So I'm really excited to see what happens next year. But Um, I also, I really liked how Mary clearly was like, well, probably I should, you know, look out for my my little cousin here. mm -hmm. And, you know, that's her first instinct is to, is solidarity with her younger generation. Yeah. Yeah. And no, and I mean... You know, Jack Ross doesn't live nearby or anything. True enough. And, you know, it it remains to be seen what actions will be taken. It does. However, either way, both to Rose and Jack Ross, uh, 
you go, guy and girl. That, that's right. I am excited, excited about this plot line. You crazy kids have a good time. Uh, anyway, that brings us to the Abbey Awards. Mm-hmm. Best Evasion this week goes to Gregson. That's right. Uh, for evading both appearing on the show and, and everyone. And appearing in physical form. Yeah. So, <laughs> like, well done? Yeah. Worst overbite, that is going to go to Maitre D of the Netherby Hotel. Oh, man. He was so snobby. Yeah. Worst decision, uh, going to Rose and Jack Ross yeah. for choosing to make out in such a conspicuous place. Yeah. Like, and they weren't even being quiet. No, I know. I mean, there's a, there's a big downstairs. You know, you know where they should have gone? The laundry room. They really should have because no one ever <laughs> wants to go there. That's right. Rose may not even know that they have a laundry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, I just give them my clothes and then they come back. I, you know. <laughs> Magic, you know. <laughs> uh, Gibson girl, we've decided to give to McGee. Yeah. We really liked her clothes, but we also just liked her so much in this episode. Right. That really put so it over the So we're kind top. of, we're kind of fudging a bit there. Yeah. But uh, I mean, the clothes were legit. Oh yeah. Like, totally. Yeah. Now time for the fashion backwards award for backwards fashion, aka the backy. <laughs> And this one, a little bit of a surprise, is going to Charles Blake. Because his hair is awful. Yes. He looks like alfalfa. (laughs) Yeah, we did not like that one bit. Next, we've got the Cutest Baby Award. That goes to young George. That's right. Uh, This particular battle of baby against baby. Yes. uh, Once again, our weekly pitting of infants (laughs) against one another for our own amusement. Yes. Uh, Yeah. You know... Sibby, not looking her best. Kind of phoning it in. Yeah. Frankly. <laughs> and then finally, everybody's favorite award, the Maggie Smith scale of Maggie Smith's. Mm-hmm. We're going to go with a, a four Maggie Smith rating this time. Uh, pretty good. She was wrong. And even if she managed to spin her admission of guilt into a uh, burn on Isabel, still, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And just, you know, just... Uh, a little lackluster. Yeah. She seemed a little tired this yeah. episode. I did enjoy her defiant bell ringing, though. Oh, absolutely. That yes. was that was spectacular. Yeah. All right. Well, we uh, are wrapping up yet another episode. Mm-hmm. Thanks so much for joining us. Yes, indeed. And until next time, up, up yours, yours downstairs, downstairs. Luncheon out. Mm-hmm.